a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast, you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, ain't Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, and welcome to the very Hillbilly Halloween edition of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. I'm Tracy. And we realize we're going to get a lot of listeners tonight that have probably not tuned into our show before. Why? Because we have a cornucopia of other podcasters on here telling some creepy stories tonight. I know. How exciting is that? I mean, I can't even tell you how many we've got. I mean, it's more than 10 i know that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so everybody's telling a story so you're going to get there's some really big name podcast in here mm-hmm. and there's some that are just starting out but they're all great stories and i think it's just going to be super fun yeah absolutely i thought we would start it out by doing one of our stories okay and then uh we're just going to turn it over and let everybody run into no no sense in introducing everybody because everybody's going to introduce themselves sounds great but I can tell you we're going to have uh, just a few on there. Uh, Diane Student from History Goes Bump. Mm-hmm. We're going to have Dina Marie from Twisted Philly. Jeremy Collins from uh, Podcasts We Listen To. We're going to have Lainey Hobbs. She's got uh, uh, True Crime Fan Club. Plus she's got her own paranormal show that she just started up. We're going to have Spectral Asylum out of uh, England. Realm nice. of Supernatural out of England, but uh, Bloody Murder out of Australia, oh, and wow. several more. But that's just to name the few. Oh, how that exciting! We got going. Woo-hoo, so, I'm excited. Yeah, this is going to be a very fun night. We've never done a Halloween special, but we thought this would just be a nice little bonus that we could throw out there. So if you're walking around, you know, after you get through trick or treating and you're just sitting with nothing to do, yeah. give us a listen for a couple of hours. Let's scare you. All right. So I thought the story that we're going to do is going to be from Salem, Massachusetts. Of course, you know, we all know what happened in Salem. Yep. Salem's a, a town that lives in infamy for, you know, pretty good reason. So much bloodshed uh, that was brought from, I guess, really the best way to put it would be hysteria and greed. Because that's really what this whole thing was about. Here in Salem, I don't know if you realize this, but only the bravest men take on the job as sheriff. No, I did not know that. Well, there's a good reason. And it's not because of the crime in Salem. Mm-hmm. That's not really an issue. It's because of the mortality rate oh of sheriffs gosh. in that town. And most people say that comes from a higher source, we'll say. Maybe a curse, even. Because we're going to talk about the curse of Giles Corey. Okay. Do you know who Giles Corey is? I don't. Well, you're going to learn all about it. Because among the many people who died in Salem unjustly because all of them died unjustly 
Even in death, there's at least one person who watches and takes satisfaction in the tragedy of the lawmen in Salem. No. Now, that's most not of, nice. <laughs> no, it's not nice at all. Now, most of you are going to know what happened in Salem in 1692. But just for those who are, might be unfamiliar with the story, I'm going to give you a very, very short version, and then we'll move on with our story. So the Puritans that lived there in, uh, when it was still a British colony, they lived a very stressful environment because there was a lot of disease. It was super cold, a lot colder than what they realized it was going to be. And like I said, with the disease running rampant, mainly smallpox was a big thing. They lost a lot of people. They were under constant um, fear of being attacked by the Native Americans. So this was just not a fun life. I mean, they lived their life like in it. fear of one thing or another. It really seemed like God himself was just punishing them. And then came along two little girls. Nine-year-old Betty Paris and her 11-year-old cousin, Abigail Williams. See, they began having these erratic-type behavior. They were having these fits, and they were, uh, I guess, it was almost like a horrifying-type behavior to anybody that was watching them. So the town needed to know why. Then these two girls started saying that members of the Salem village were witches, and they were casting spells on them. So then other people in the community kind of jumped on board. That's what this historian that hysteria part kind of mm-hmm. jumps in. Then they started accusing all these other different people of being witches. Next thing you know, you got, you know, 20-some people that were locked up for being charged for witchcraft. So did they believe the other little girls when oh, they yeah, said yeah. that? They did. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, what the little girl said, that was just taken as there's mm-hmm. no way it could be anything else but that. Mm-hmm. So when you were accused of being a witch and arrested... You were subjected to all these different ridiculous tests, and you were tortured until you either confessed or they determined you weren't a witch. And it would be stuff like, let's put boulders on you and put you in the water, and if you sink and die, well, you wouldn't a witch. Oh. Either way. How horrible. Yeah, so you you had no way of winning. Yeah, there's no win there at all. Now, contrary to a lot of uh, misbelief, people talk about the witches being burned at the stake, mm-hmm. but all of them were actually hanged. Mm. here except for one giles Corey. now giles Corey's wife martha was accused of, of consorting with the devil and writing her name in the dark book because that was one of the things they said that witches would do in some cases they would the devil would come write a book and they would write their name and in, mm-hmm. in blood and then that was basically turning your soul over to him now giles himself was not initially charged with being a witch he actually kind of encouraged the accusations and thought it was kind of funny and mocked it against his wife until he saw what a mockery the proceedings had actually become. So when he tried to recant his yeah. his sayings of what he did, he was accused of, of witchcraft himself and he was put in jail. Now, Giles, keep in mind, was 80 years old. Oh, Lord, time. I was thinking he was like a young dude or something. He owned a bunch of land and uh, he had a bunch of grown children. Now... Obviously, he wants to leave his inheritance to his children, but this is where the greed part comes in. Back in the days of uh, the colonial times there, if you were accused of witchcraft, now it, was a, it was according to the law that if you were convicted, you had to forfeit all of your property to the town, and oh. it was divided up amongst the city officials. What? There was even crooked back then. So these city officials... Could blame you for being a witch. Just so they could get your And stuff. then take your land. That and is that's, messed up. And that's what was happening right there. So these were the people, keep in mind, that were doing the accusing 
the arresting and the punishing. Mm -hmm. So they were in complete control of everything. Now, Giles was pretty smart, though. So when he realized that pleading innocent or guilty was going to result in no inheritance for his kids, he found a legal loophole. And he decided that he was going to refuse to enter any type of plea. That way, no matter how he died, the land would go to his children because he was never pleaded innocent or guilty. So by law, that was the one loophole where... Oh. So the magistrate in town was pretty pissed off. And they decided to torture him until he pleaded one way or the other, which is what they had success with with all the other people that they were trying to uh, accuse of witchcraft. So they took him out to a field. They put this board... On his chest. And when I say board, think more like the size of a door. So it wasn't like a little two by four. It was like like they just took a, a door and laid it on top of him. So then they started slowly piling these big field stones on top of his chest or on top of this board until it crushed him. It took more than two agonizing days for Giles to die. But before he died... Giles cursed not only the sheriff who arrested him, but the whole town. His famous last words, right before he placed the curse on the town, will live in infamy. When he was asked for the last time, what is your plea? He responded with, more weight. So he never did say? Nope. Wow. So there are two specific phenomena that are kind of linked to the curse of Giles Corey uh, that that uh, that was put on the town of Salem. So the first is a rash of reports that people see in Giles right before a tragedy occurs. Now, in the the wake of death and chaos and destruction, people reported seeing a, a very strange old man lives either lurking about or standing at the scene of his own death. But, in, I mean, honestly, I'm, in the end, though, I mean, couldn't they just said, oh, he said guilty? Well, no, because you know, these were loyal people and then God-fearing people. So oh. they still felt like what they were doing was right, even though it wasn't. Okay, sorry. So, like, for example, before the Great Fire of 1914, he was cited. It's believed that he watched every time the town suffered and took some kind of satisfaction from the pain that his curse was inflicting. Mm. Now, the second phenomenon, though scientifically is kind of explainable, but it's still weird and creepy to say the least. From the day Giles Corey died, every person, now keep in mind, this was the 1600s. From the day that he died, every person to hold the possession of Essex County um, Sheriff, Mm -hmm. beginning with George Corum, who arrested Giles, has either died in office or was forced into early retirement from a heart or blood ailment. Wow. That's what they get. So we know that the position of sheriff is a very stressful one to begin with, just because it's law enforcement. But for each and every man from the 1600s to the present to all have met similar fate is a little chilling. To the present day? Yeah. I mean, this goes from 16, all the way up to today. Every person oh to ever gosh. hold the title of sheriff in a town has either re- died in office or was forced to retire early due to a heart or blood ailment. That is crazy. Quorum himself died of a heart attack. 
Most disturbing, though, are the reports from many former sheriffs. It's not just one, a bunch of them waking up in the middle of the night to see a strange old man in their bedroom and then feeling a crushing weight on their chest. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. So, I mean, if do all these sheriffs or whatever just don't believe in it or something? And that, I mean, I'll be daggone if I'd be sheriff of, you know what I'm saying? I don't know, but you got over 400 years of the same thing. That is crazy. So that's why you got to be a pretty brave man to be a sheriff in Salem, Massachusetts. Well, I would say so. Boy, and that guy didn't play. He meant business. <laughs> But bless him. I mean, that's a good thing that he stuck to his word. And, you know, so I guess the kids got the inheritance got the and all inheritance. that. Wow. What a, that's a great story. Guys, thank you for listening to our story. Stay tuned for several awesome stories. And we hope you have a great spooky Halloween. Ooh. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast and a new paranormal podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? I've been asked to share my spooky tale with you, so here it goes. I'm a big fan of history and the paranormal. I thought it would be fitting to talk about a story I found in one of my favorite books about my hometown, Plano, Texas. It's called Haunted Plano. The Masonic Lodge in Plano has been in their building since 1925. During a haunted tour I did a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to enter this creepy building, which was a dream come true. When we walked up the two flights of stairs, we entered a dining room and we were greeted by a brother. We asked permission to enter the main room so that we could hear from the historian the spooky encounters the brothers continued to experience. One particular encounter definitely sent chills down my spine and stood out to me the most. The story goes that J.W. Shepard was the owner of the building and a mason. He was a rancher, so he constantly wore his boots everywhere he went. Plano in the early 1900s was a farm town and cotton was its main export. J.W. loved ranching and he loved being a mason. One night a few years back, one brother was working late. He was in the main room, the same one I was in at the time. He turned off the lights and began his descent downstairs. As he nears the second landing, he begins to hear footsteps following him. The footsteps are hard and deliberate. It sounds like the person behind him is on a mission. He begins to feel uneasy and continues quickly down the stairs and unlocks the door to exit. As he is quickly unlocking the door, he glances up and notices a man's face as a reflection in the glass, which means it's right behind him. He quickly bolts the door shut behind him and leaves. The next day, he shares with his brothers what happened, and they shared that they too had heard footsteps walking up and down the stairs, but they had never seen a face before. Then one day, a few years later, the city of Plano gifted a picture of J.W. Shepard to the Masons. When the brothers saw the portrait, he stopped dead in his tracks and said, That's the man I saw that night. Oh, I get chills just thinking about it now. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this bit of haunted history from my hometown in Plano, Texas. Children of my office, 
From high matters, I spare time to preside over this gathering. By the favor of our Lord Satan, I have the power to grant your wishes, should it please me to do so. Waste no moment in unnecessary babbling, or you will incur my anger. Now, lift up your heads and tell me your desires. Who seeks entry here? Hey guys, I'm Nikki from the Color Me Dead podcast. We are a true crime podcast that gives you all the gory details. Maybe some that you didn't want to know, but we don't leave anything out. We add in our own dark humor, but be warned, we are very foul-mouthed. And semi-inappropriate most of the time. But if this is your thing, you can check us out every Wednesday because on Wednesdays we wear murder. Today I'm going to tell you a creepypasta story. I don't have any good personal stories. My co-host Angel has all of those stories with her creepy house and skinwalkers, but she talked about skinwalkers on a previous episode of Hillbilly Horror Story, so if you missed that, go check it out and you can hear my other half. I'm going to talk to you today about creepypasta. In the summer of 2003, there were stories about a human-like creature of unknown origin lurking about. Witnesses told stories about their encounters with said creature. They caused fright and curiosity to anyone who heard the stories. By 2006, nearly 24 documents from 12 different continents about these creatures were out. The stories were almost always identical. One of the most haunting witnesses' accounts was from 2006, and I'm going to read it to you now. Three years ago, I had just returned from a trip from Niagara Falls with my family for the 4th of July. We were all very exhausted after a long day of driving, so my husband and I put the kids right to bed and called it a night. At about 4 a.m., I woke up thinking my husband had gotten up to use the bathroom. I used the moment to steal back the sheets only to wake up to see him in the process. I apologized and told him that I thought he got out of bed. When he turned to face me, he gasped and pulled his feet up from the end of the bed so so quickly that his knees almost knocked me out of the bed. He then grabbed me and said nothing. After adjusting to the dark for half a second, I was able to see what caused the strange reaction. At the foot of the bed, sitting and facing away from us, there was what appeared to be a naked man or a large hairless dog of some sort. Its body position was disturbing and unnatural, as if it had been hit by a car or something. For some reason, I was not instantly frightened by it, but more concerned as to its condition. At this point, I was somewhat under the assumption that we were supposed to help him. My husband was peering over his arm and knee, tucked into the fetal position, occasionally glancing at me before returning to the creature. In a flurry of motion, the creature scrambled around the side of the bed and then crawled quickly in a flailing sort of motion right along the bed until it was less than a foot from my husband's face. The creature was completely silent for about 30 seconds, or probably closer to five. It just seemed like a while. Just looking at my husband, the creature then placed its hand on his knee and ran into the hallway leading to the kids rooms I screamed and ran for the light switch planning to stop him before he hurt my children when I got to the hallway the light from the bedroom was enough to see it crouching and hunched over about 20 feet away he turned around and looked directly at me covered in blood I flipped the switch on the wall and saw my daughter Clara The creature ran down the stairs while my husband and I rushed to help our daughter. She was very badly injured and only spoke once more in her short life. She said, he is the rake. 
My husband drove his car into a lake that night while rushing our daughter to the hospital. They did not survive. Being a small town, news got around pretty quickly. The police were helpful at first, and then the local newspaper took a lot of interest as well. However, the story was never published, and the the local television news never followed up either. For several months, my son Jason and... um, My son Justin and I stayed in a hotel near my parents' house. After we decided to return home, I began to look for answers for myself. I eventually located a man in the next town over who had a similar story. We got in contact and began talking about our experiences. He knew of two people in New York who had seen the creature we now refer to as the rake. It took the four of us about two solid years of hunting on the internet, us writing letters, to come up with a small collection of what we believed to be accounts of the rake. None of them gave any details, history, or follow-up. One journal had an entry involving the creature in its first three pages, and never mentioned it again. A ship's log explained nothing of the encounter, saying only that they were told to leave by the rake. That was the last entry in the log. There were, however, many instances where the creature's visit was one of a series of visits with the same person. Multiple people also mentioned being spoken to, my daughter included. This led us to wonder if the rake had visited any of us before our last encounter. I set up a digital recorder near my bed and left it running all night, every night, for two weeks. I would tediously scan through the sounds of me rolling around in my bed each day when I woke up. By the end of the second week, I was quite used to the occasional sound of sleep while blurring through the record at eight times normal speed. This still took almost an hour every day. On the first day of the third week, I thought I heard something different. What I found was a shrill voice. It was the rake. I can't listen to it long enough to even begin to transcribe it. I haven't let anyone listen to it yet. All I know is that I've heard it before, and I now believe that it spoke when it was sitting in front of my husband. I don't remember hearing anything at the time, but for some reason, the voice on the recorder immediately brings me back to that moment. The thoughts that must have gone through my daughter's head make me very upset. I have not seen the rake since he ruined my life, but I know that he has been in my room while I slept. I know and fear that one night I'll wake up to see him staring at me. I hope you enjoyed my story of the rake. Come and check us out. Color Me Dead podcast. And stay out of chalk lines. Goodbye. Hello to all you wonderful Hillbilly Horror Story fans. My name is Karen Wickiam and I am the host of STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, as well as the Unequal Podcast. I have been given an opportunity from Jerry to tell a spooky story. And of course, I jumped all over that. So let me tell this story. First of all, I just want to preface it by saying that I've lived in 
two haunted houses and have sort of experienced or seen things ever since I was a little child. My family thought I had a wild imagination and a lot of imaginary friends. The fact is, I was speaking to people all around me. Because of these experiences, my love and curiosity of the paranormal grew and grew. I am a retired ER nurse, and through my years, I have had experiences in almost every hospital that I've worked at. I had the opportunity to join a paranormal team investigation team so I jumped all over that. I've been doing some investigations on my own and it's a little bit more scary, a little bit more dangerous and not as fun. Currently I've gone back to doing paranormal investigation on my own or just one or two people because I find it's a little less complicated. So let's get started. There is one particular location that the lead investigator was able to get us in to investigate which was really exciting. It was on a plot of land that had originally been Aboriginal land. And they had gone through, and the people of this land were killed off, had their land taken away from them, and desecrated. Very, very, very disrespected and treated horribly. People had settled on this land and a little village was there. It had one home and some stores like shoemaking, uh, woodworking, a barn, those types of things. Also on the property was or is a cemetery, a church, and a building that had served as a school slash meeting area that had burnt to the ground at one point down to its basement and they rebuilt on top of the basement. People had perished in that. So if you add up all the things that had taken place there, death, despair, destruction, all of it, that makes for a very highly charged area. The one building that I had been investigating that night was the church. The reverend of the church back in the late 1800s was very much a fire and brimstone guy. He was very strict in his values. Women were to be in their place, making babies, taking care of their men, being very obedient, living under his very strict rules. And one of the biggest rules... They were not allowed on the elevated area, the stage, the pulpit. That was an absolute no-no. It would enrage him. It could get you kicked out of the church. So, another thing to know is that the front area of the church was a viewing area for people that had passed, where they would have the funeral. Let me tell you about one of the funeral services that took place there. There was a husband and wife. They were quite close. The husband died. It was a shock and his wife had gone into a very deep mourning, hysterical. And when his body was in viewing in the casket, she was screaming and crying and and, and very much upset. And she would wander around the pews, wringing her hands, crying. And she did this for a very long time. 
Eventually, she had stopped, she had passed on, and that's all we really know about that story. So, as you can see, a very charged church area, cemetery right beside it. When we went into the building, or even as we approached the building, it felt very dark, felt very ominous. We had all our equipment with us, and the psychic that was with us immediately could hear some children, could hear a loud crying, and even saw some blood in the doorway. Again, it to me, it felt really dark and, and thick, if that makes any sense, and got a sense of feeling kind of woozy, dizzy, that type of thing. So, of course, what did I do? I went and stood up on the stage at the pulpit, pretending to give a sermon. Things really started to ramp up right then. I was trying to dry him out. And it just got darker, it got really cold, and it just felt wrong. That's all I can explain it, that there was a dark presence there. The next part I don't really remember too much. The rest of the crew were filming, doing EVPs, doing what you do in an investigation. The next thing that I know is that the psychic had me by the shoulders and was shaking me, yelling, out, 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 out. And then she said, blow, and I went, and this kind of gray-white mist came out of my mouth. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? So I guess while they were investigating, I had exited the stage and had been wandering around in circles over and over again around the pews going or singing bringing in the sheaves bringing in the sheaves that song and they took notice of it and the and the psychic and the team felt that I had a walk-in not quite a possession but that the spirit or ghost had sort of kind of taken over my body or was influencing me to behave like like it. So the psychic helped to release that from me. And it was just, it was absolutely crazy. We believe that it was the woman who was mourning her husband that had stepped into me and had been influencing me. So thank goodness that they jumped in and, and pulled me out of that. So that was that was pretty scary. And the things that we captured were EVPs, some orbs. Got to be careful with orbs because a lot of times they're dust and things like that. But uh, we had got some great evidence. And there's even a picture of me in my wandering state. And there's a big ass orb over my head. So who knows? So that's my story. And some people will believe it. Some people won't. But I can attest that I know what happened to me. So that is it. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Tracy, for allowing me this opportunity to tell my story. I love your show. I love you guys. And you're the best. To everybody else, have a safe and spooky Halloween. Why do you seem so scared? All I wanted to do was play with you. I'm Nate Hale from the Conspirators Podcast, and Halloween is my absolute favorite holiday.
On my show, I like to tell the strange and scary stories from history your teacher never told you. Here's a creepy story from Georgia in the 19th century about an unusual woman and a bloodthirsty creature that stalked the night. Everyone always said that Emily took after her father. This wasn't exactly a compliment either, because even from an early age, people noticed the little girl's unusual appearance. She had thick black eyebrows and unsightly hair that always seemed to stick out and grow wild no matter how much brushing they did. Emily had always been an odd child, quiet and reserved in a way that was slightly unnerving. When other children her age were running around playing, Emily always seemed to hang back and just watch them from the distance. Her full name was Emily Isabel Burt, and she was born in 1841 the youngest child of a wealthy family in what is now the town of Woodland, Georgia. After Emily's father died when she was still young, he left his entire estate to Emily's mother. It was shortly after that Mildred Owen Burt decided to ship all her children off to boarding school in Europe, freeing herself up to begin spending her days hanging out with the area's other socialites. Emily eventually returned home after spending some time abroad, By now, the socially awkward little girl had grown into a socially awkward teenager. Her time in Europe hadn't done much to help her disposition either. In fact, her behavior struck most people as even stranger than usual. She looked sickly, for one thing, pale with skin-like milk and a vacant stare that always seemed to be looking at something a million miles away. She complained to her mother that she wasn't able to sleep at night. The woods were too loud and her bed felt too uncomfortable, the sheets itching furiously against her skin. Over time, Mildred Burt began to realize that Emily had begun sneaking out to the nearby forest in the middle of the night. Although when she confronted her daughter about this, Emily claimed to have no memory of her midnight strolls. Mildred decided to write the entire matter off as a symptom of puberty. Her daughter's body was changing, simple as that. Some girls just changed differently is all. It was around the same time that local farmers began reporting troubles of their own. It seemed that a pack of wolves must have moved into the area, because more and more livestock was turning up ripped to shreds in the fields around town. Outside predators were always a threat to domestic farm animals, but lately things had been ramping up more than anyone could recall. It didn't seem like a single morning went by without one of the local farmers discovering a sheep or a cow's bloody carcass splattered across a field. Wolves are typically nocturnal hunters. The farmers began forming nightly hunting parties in order to catch the wolves and wipe them out. But despite finding large wolf tracks throughout the woods, they were never able to track the creature back to its den. Thus, the killings continued. There was one resident in particular who came up with an idea why they were unable to catch the wolf that was causing so much trouble. This came from an old recluse who hailed from somewhere in Eastern Europe. And when he stood up at one of the town meetings and told them what he believed was killing their animals at night, nobody laughed or called him crazy. This was no ordinary wolf, he said. It was, in fact, a creature known as Lalugru, better known as a werewolf. By now, the farmers were growing desperate, so they asked the old man for his advice on what they could do. 
He suggested that they wait to hunt the creature down until the night of the next full moon. In the meantime, they should collect together every scrap of silver they could get their hands on and melt it all down to make bullets. With no other options and a growing pile of dead animals, the farmers all agreed they had no other choice. A few weeks later, the moon shone full and bright overhead, and the hunt was on. The men all gathered together with their hunting rifles, each loaded with silver bullets, and headed out into the woods. They first found a set of massive paw prints that led them to a field where they saw an enormous frightening shape in the distance. It was a gigantic wolf silhouetted by moonlight. This was bigger than any wolf any of them had ever seen before. But even beyond that was something else even more frightening. This particular wolf was standing upright on two legs. Before they could get too close, the monster's ears twitched as it detected them. It turned its head in their direction, just as the group of hunters all opened fire. The creature let off a horrific scream, then bolted away. They rushed to where the creature had been standing just moments before, but now it was gone. The creature had left a trail of blood behind. Clearly, they had hit it with at least some of their shots. The sound of gunshots startled Mildred Owen Burt awake. Who on earth could be hunting at this hour of the night? She went to check on her children, only to discover that Emily's bed was empty. She thought of the hunters firing guns in the dark, and realized that Emily might be in danger if she went off on one of her midnight hikes. Mildred lit a lantern and headed off into the woods. There she found Emily, and just as she feared, her daughter was injured. The worst of the wounds was a bullet hole clean through the palm of Emily's hand. Mildred fetched the local doctor to patch her daughter up. The following day, word reached Mildred about the creature the men had been hunting. Suddenly, Mildred began to look at her daughter in a different light. She thought of Emily's odd hair growth, her midnight strolls, and lately, did Emily's teeth appear more pointed than usual? Yes, she thought. They did. Rumors say that Mildred Burt shipped Emily back off to Europe to come under the care of a doctor in Paris who specialized in curing lycanthropy. According to legend, the animal mutilations all stopped after Emily left town. Years later, Emily Isabel Burt returned to Georgia a changed woman. She was still oddly quiet and reserved, but she no longer appeared to have the urge to wander the woods at night. She lived the remainder of her life as a successful businesswoman and landlord before dying in 1911 at age 70. Now, of course, there's no definitive proof that Emily Isabel Burt was an actual werewolf. In fact, there are some historians who claim there is very little evidence to substantiate much of the story. And yet, there really was an Emily Isabel Burt, and her body is buried in a private cemetery near Woodland. If you're ever in the neighborhood, you can go ask for permission to visit the grave and make up your own mind. I just wouldn't do so on the night of a full moon if I were you. Please come and play with me. I am so lonely. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Hello, you Hillbilly Horror Stories listeners. I'm Diane, student creator and host of the History Goes Bump podcast and the upcoming Death Box podcast. And I'm here to wish you a happy Halloween and tell you a scary story. 
Every year, I attend the Haunted America Conference, which is hosted in Alton, Illinois. This is a small city about 25 miles east of St. Louis. And although it's a small city, it's a really haunted one. And I'm going to tell you about a particular place that's haunted there. This is a house that's known as the Nathaniel Hansen Mansion, and it's located on 3rd Street. This home was constructed, of course, by Nathaniel Hansen, and this was back in 1857. He was a wealthy farm implement manufacturer, and he was a part of the abolitionist movement that was in Alton, and it was really big in Alton. Most people may not know that. He had a prime location on a bluff that overlooked the Alton Riverfront and the Mississippi River, and he decided this would be a great spot for an underground railroad hideout. So as it was being constructed, he asked that tunnels be added to the basement of the house so that runaway slaves could be hidden there safely. Later on, this became the Enos Sanatorium, and people who had tuberculosis lived here for a time. And of course, they died there as well. And today it's known as the Enos Apartments, so it has several apartments there. When you step far away from the mansion, you can see that on the very top of it, there is an ornate cupola. And this was used as a kind of signal post to let escaped slaves know that they could come to the house as they were coming across the river. There would be a light that was placed in the window, and it was said to have been a signal that all was clear. Two lights meant that there was danger afoot. So it kind of reminds me of Paul Revere. If you think about it, this place would be full of a lot of emotions. Not only did you have people die at the sanatorium, but you also had the feelings that these runaway slaves must have had. There was probably a lot of fear and trepidation about their future. I've been inside the Enos building a couple of times, specifically down in the tunnel that used to be where the runaway slaves would stay. It's a very creepy place. It feels kind of like a circular cave that's encased in brick. It would not be a fun place to stay while you're hiding out, that's for sure. Our guide told us stories about a child ghost that's down there that occasionally slips its hand into the hands of people who are down there on a tour. And while a child ghost is not specifically very scary, there is something malevolent that's down in that tunnel. When the Alton Ghost Tours hosts a tour, they always have somebody that they keep at the tail end of it called the caboose. This is somebody who also works for the tour company, and they just make sure that everybody stays together, that nobody wanders off, nobody gets lost, just keeps an eye on things. And since a lot of haunting activity happens on this tour, they're there to help out with any of those kinds of issues that come up as well. The name of the tour guide that I was with and who does most of the tours is named Luke. And he was telling us that he had a female friend who was working as the caboose that evening, and she was one of the tour guides as well. What they do is they have you all come into the tunnel and line up against the wall. And it's a pretty long tunnel, so you can get everybody in there pretty comfortably. And then the person who's playing the caboose usually stands either in the outer room or right in that doorway. And this young lady was doing that. And all of a sudden, she got a really bad feeling. The hair on the back of her neck stood up. And she was facing the tunnel so that she could see everybody that was in there. The one thing that I need to tell you is, once they get us all in there, they turn out all the lights. And there is no light. Just a very little bit of ambient light that might be coming down the stairway. So it's pretty much pitch black in here. And even though it's pitch black in the tunnel, this young lady was able to see a shadow figure that stepped in front of her and kept her from being able to see inside the tunnel. She was absolutely terrified. She's had experiences, but nothing like this. Because not only was this a huge, hulking, black shadow figure, darker than it was actually in the tunnel, she could feel as though whatever this was hated her. It was such a horrible feeling 
that she took off and ran up the stairs. Luke turned on the lights and went up after her. At that point, he said, you know, I really don't care about my tour and what's going on there. I just know that my friend took off up the stairs and she's never done that before. When he got outside and was talking to her, she told him, I don't know what's down there, but it's evil and it's big and I felt like it was going to hurt me. I can't remember how many months he said it took her to finally join up with the tour again and to act as the caboose again, but I think it was at least a year before she was comfortable ever going down there. That's how terrified she was. Now, when you hear a story like this, it's easy for us to say, "Mm, maybe she just thought something was there. I mean, it was just a dark, shadowy figure. Maybe it was something that crossed over the ambient light. Maybe she was just getting a negative feeling for some other reason. But to add to this story, when I go around on some of these ghost tours, I like to take my little Zoom H1 with me and use it as a recorder and see if I can pick up any EVP. So while I was down in this tunnel, I had that recorder on. And I could tell you, I've never picked up any EVP like I did down in that tunnel. What I'm going to do is play it for you a couple times here to see if you hear what I hear. And then I'll tell you what I think I hear. And uh, we do know that there is a child. There's been a lot of people who have encountered it. Uh, Sometimes it's by that little shirt tug trying to get your attention. But other times he'll actually hold people's hand. And uh, we do know that there is a child. There's been a lot of people who have encountered it. Uh, Sometimes it's by that little shirt tug trying to get your attention. But other times he'll actually hold people's hand. Did you hear it? Sure sounded to me like a growl. I'll play it again. And uh, we do know that there is a child. There's been a lot of people who have encountered it. Uh, Sometimes it's by that little shirt tug trying to get your attention. But other times he'll actually hold people's hand. I don't know about you guys, but for me, it added a lot of credence to the story that she told. There definitely seems to be something malevolent down in that tunnel that used to be a part of the Underground Railroad. Happy Halloween! Don't be afraid. Come with me. I will show you where I play hide-and-seek. Do you want to play hide-and-seek? You hide, and I'll find you. You're going to die in there. Don't say I didn't warn you. I'm Lindsay Beckley, host of The Ghost Press, where we breathe new life into old ghost stories. The pages of old newspapers are littered with stories of the dead. Here's one now. This dastardly descriptive tale comes to us from the Ohio County News of Hartford, Kentucky. Date, June 12, 1895. The tale begins, as so many of our tales do, with a murder. Three decades before the unnerving narrative appeared in print, there lived a family by the name of Holder who resided in a home on the outskirts of Mount Vernon, Kentucky. This brood wasn't the type you'd want living next door, though, so it's probably best that they lived in a rather remote locale. Indeed, they were widely known as thieves and robbers, and there were even whispers of murder. Those whispers turned to outright accusations after a traveler named James Travers from Ohio disappeared while passing through Mount Vernon. Travers' brother came to town to make inquiries and, after speaking with that 
unreputable family on the outskirts of town, he came to believe that the holders knew more than they were willing to say about the whereabouts of the missing migrant. There was no evidence, of course, but rumors flew as they often do in small towns. When Travers' brother returned to the house with detectives and found the house abandoned with no trace of its inhabitants, the case went cold and not but whispered rumors remained of the awful affair that may have occurred. Eventually, those rumors seemed to be validated, but not, perhaps, in the way one might expect. That dismal house on the outskirts of town sat vacant for some time after the hasty departure of the holders. But eventually, after brushing aside tales of unexplainable happenings in the home, a man named Tom Rose took up residence. It wasn't long before he himself was adding to those tales of the mysterious events occurring in the dwelling, which he had so carelessly brushed aside just weeks earlier. He claimed that every day, precisely at the strike of noon, a strange voice, voice seeming to come, to come from, from the, the direction of the gate opening on the road, would shout, Hello! three times quite distinctly. On going to investigate, nobody could be found. Rose suspected bothersome neighbors at first, but he was unable to catch them in the act. One of his neighbors, a skeptical sort of man, decided to investigate for himself. Not only did he hear the disembodied voice, but... A large and ferocious watchdog that belonged to Ross, and which was standing midway between the house and the gate, suddenly dropped his tail and retreated to the house, snapping, snarling, and barking as if pursued by some terrible object intent upon doing bodily harm. On reaching the dwelling, the dog took refuge under the bed, from whence no persuasion could induce it to come for some hours. Understandably, Rose quickly vacated the premises. Soon, another tenant took up residence, only to tell a similar tale. But by this time, it seems that the spectral visitor was not content with simply helloing the house. No, according to John Dietzman, the ghost would come lumbering down the stairs from the little room above, making a noise similar to that of an empty flour barrel rolling down the steps. The uncanny visitor, at all times invisible, would proceed to the fireplace, stir up the embers, and cause a roaring fire to blow up the chimney. This performance was repeated nightly, and all the time John and his good wife would lie in bed, shivering with terror and not daring to move. Unsurprisingly, Dietzman didn't last long in the dreadful dwelling. One evening, a group of young men decided to test their courage in the now dilapidated house on the outskirts of town. As they approached the home, though, they saw from a distance that the structure was engulfed in flames. As we all know, disasters such as fires draw people in like moths to a, well, a flame. And so, the young men who were drawn to the flaming home, their eyes as large as those on, 
well, on a mouth's wings. Man, who knew young drunk men have so much in common with moths? Anyways, the moths, uh, I mean, the men, turned a corner in the road, and to their amazement, there stood the house, as dark and gloomy as ever. Of course, all of these strange occurrences were attributed to the spirit of Travers, who, you'll remember, was suspected to have been murdered in the home by the Holder family. As the home went longer and longer without a tenant due to the story surrounding it, the citizens of Rock Castle County took it upon themselves to try to solve the mystery, both of the murder and of the hauntings. And to that end, the floors of the house were taken away and every foot of ground turned up to a considerable depth. But nothing was discovered. An old outhouse that stood in one corner of the neglected yard had the rough puncheon floor taken up. Here the searchers met with better success, for after digging a while, a man's skeleton was unearthed. The back of the skull was badly crushed, showing in what manner death was inflicted. It was Travers, the long-missing traveler. The skeleton was given a proper burial, in hopes that that would put the spirit to rest. Alas, the next family that lived there stayed for mere weeks before fleeing after being nearly frightened to death by the unseen noontime visitor and his unearthly cry. Once again, I'm Lindsay Beckley, and this has been a special edition of the Ghost Press. Ghost Press is written by me, Lindsay Beckley. Production and sound design by Jill Weiss Simmons. Reading all eerie excerpts in this episode was Justin Clark. A huge thank you to Jerry and Tracy for allowing us to be a part of this exceptionally eerie episode of Hillbilly Horror Stories. Find us on social media at, at @ghostpresspod and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss one frightful minute. I know things no one knows. You're going to die. Help me. I'm begging you. Can you help me? Hey guys, I'm investigative podcaster of Out of the Shadows. My co-host Gemma Hoskins and I have been busy on our current season, picking up where the Netflix docuseries The Keepers left off. I hope you enjoy this short story about a place not far from me. Oh, and I should mention, it's a true story. In Peru, Indiana, turn onto 510 East and State Road 124. The long gravel road will end in a circle. This is where you'll want to park. Oki Pinoki Woods. You will see a small cluster of pillars at the entrance of a gravel road. This site used to be a swampy and marshy land. There have been at least eight decaying bodies found there that have been reported by the Mississinawa Reservoir staff. This site may be an old burial ground of some sort, or a battlefield, as to the thousands of spirits hiding within these trees. 
you will drive down this gravel road, and the trees will begin to swarm and intertwine above you. You will then come to a circle. Getting out of the car, it is said that if you whistle, someone will begin whistling with you from deep within the forest. It is also said that a noise like a pig squeal and dogs barking can be heard like it is right next to you. And last, but not least, you will hear screams like a small child is being tortured. Supposedly, it is a seven-year-old girl named Stephanie. Traveling along a path, you will find a tree that has indents that appear to be much like deer antlers. However, these are horizontal instead of vertical and have a place for an opposable thumb. There's a warning. Do not go here unless you really want to be terrified. The legend starts with Joey Peoria. He grew up playing, camping, and hunting in this forest and knew the area inside and out. His mother would often say, that as a boy, there were more woods on Joey's clothes than in the woods. Joey was constantly bringing home frogs, snakes, and green geckos, much to his mother's delight. This place was truly his childhood playground. He continued to frequent the oaky woods into his adulthood and never lost the love of nature. In the early spring, 1976, Joey and three of his friends strolled into the woods to go camping, and they never came out. It was several days before anyone became concerned because they had all planned on spending an extended weekend in the woods, as they often did. Four days after they walked into the forest, a search party discovered the partially decaying bodies of three young men. The men had been brutally murdered and could barely be identified. Joey Peoria was never found or seen again. After an extensive investigation, it was determined that an argument occurred between the campers, and it was suspected that Joey had killed the three men. Several years later, Joey's wife confessed to having an affair with one of the men Joey was camping with. She was concerned because she thought Joey might suspect the affair, but she was sure he couldn't know with whom. After the story of the affair was made public, the locals were sure that Joey did the killing and that the Oaky Woods was now haunted. Between 1980 and 1985, five more young men were found dead in the same scenic area as the first three. People stopped going into the woods as they were convinced that Joey had lived there for years and that he was completely evil. It is believed that sometime after the eighth murder, the spirit of a British soldier who was killed in 1812 intervened and stopped Joey from killing anymore. The Joey Peoria story is only a small part of the spiritual history housed within these woods. There are likely thousands of spirits out there all with a different story, some good and some bad. I'm alone and scared. I lost my mommy. Can you help me?
I'm coming for you. Hey, it's Tyler from the Minds of Madness. So you wanted to hear a scary story from me, and I don't think this one is exactly scary, but I guess at the time I was a bit creeped out. So this would have happened, I'd say about 20 years ago. I had just moved in to the girl I was dating with. I had moved into her house, and in the house it was a one of those small post-war bungalows that they uh, put up in East York, just off the Danforth in Toronto. And it had two bedrooms upstairs, a small living room, small galley kitchen, and the basement had been finished. There was a bedroom and then just your standard unfinished basement part of it on the other side. I guess it was about a month into living there. I think at that time I was working days and the girl I was dating, she was working evenings. And her brother also lived with us. He had the bedroom downstairs and he was out. So I was there by myself. At the time, I think it was getting close to Christmas, I had been dabbling in painting. I was working with acrylic paints and giant canvases, and I don't think they were really that good, the paintings, but we hung them up, I think, just to, uh, mostly it was done probably to humor me. And so I'm sitting in the living room, painting on the floor. I had this giant canvas, and I was painting, and I started hearing this banging and things were moving around downstairs and i'm like okay well i'm not really familiar with the house it was a it was an old place and so i thought okay well, it was probably just the pipes or something and it continued and i think you know probably about 10 minutes into it i was like okay i'd hear a noise it would stop and then i continue painting and then i'd hear another noise and it would stop and then I started hearing, like, I guess the best way to describe it would be, like, a, I thought it was like a kitten or like a puppy, young animal, whimpering kind of sound. I figured that was coming from outside. I, I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that. And uh, the thought didn't occur to me that you know, it could be something that wasn't alive, <laughs> I guess would be the best way to describe it. So I'm painting away, I hear the noise, I'm like, it's coming from outside, and then I realized this is actually happening a little bit more often than you think a knocking pipe or, or, you know, a cat outside crying would be. So I went to the top of the stairs, I looked down to the basement, no sounds, and then I come back and I'd hear a sound, and then I'd go back to the top of the stairs, kind of walk halfway down the stairs and kind of tilt my head and listen towards the basement nothing and it got to the point that i decided i was probably going to go outside and i walked outside of the house looked into the basement window and it was one of those you know those really narrow ground level small windows in a window well and i sat out there and this was december so i mean it was cold and i sat out there and stared in the window into the basement and watched and watched and watched and nothing nothing happened went back into the house heard another bang and i think i yelled something like you know stop it or something like that and that was it nothing beyond that so it freaked me out a bit but not really that much anyway uh the girl i was dating comes home and i said to her i'm like um when I was here, it was really quiet. 
I kind of started hearing all these things in the house. And she goes, oh, did you hear the baby crying? What? She's like, yeah, did you hear the baby crying? And I'm like, um, I heard, you know, heard something, but I don't know what it was. And she told me that her brother would get woken up in the middle of the night uh, hearing a baby crying outside of his bedroom, which was downstairs. He moved out a month later. We hadn't heard anything beyond that. And then we moved out the following month after he did. And yeah, it was only the one time. It was really strange. We never ended up finding out if there was a baby that had passed in the house or anything like that. And it was just kind of this creepy event that happened. And I don't even think we really talked about it beyond that night. I guess that was my one brush with paranormal activity. And aside from that, nothing else spooky has happened. I'm going to knock on wood. (laughs) Thanks for having me on the show. I'm going to be there watching you. I will get to you. I will find you. Hey, Hillbilly Horror Story fans. This is Dina Marie, the host of the Twisted Philly podcast. And I am delighted to join Jerry and Tracy and a host of other podcasters on this very special Halloween episode. I'm going to share two short stories with you from Pine Street. That's in a section of Philadelphia called Old City, which, as the name says, is the oldest part of the city of Philadelphia. Our first story comes to us from St. Peter's Episcopal Church. This church was built in 1761, out of necessity due to overcrowding of parishioners at nearby Christ's Church. The church has a neighboring graveyard, and among those tombstones you'll see the names of some very prominent figures from both the Revolutionary and Civil Wars but there are some unmarked gravestones there as well. Those stones belong to Native American chiefs of the Iroquois tribe who were visiting Philadelphia to meet with George Washington in the early 1790s. While they were in Philadelphia, they died as a result of a smallpox infection. Almost every night, for some reason, right around 9 p.m., the ghost of a man can be seen kneeling or leaning over those unmarked graves. That's the only spot that he seems to spend time in the graveyard at St. Peter's Episcopal Church. No one is quite certain who this specter is, only that he seems to demonstrate great care and concern for those chiefs who died while visiting the city of Philadelphia. There's also a legend that you can sometimes see these Native American chiefs wandering the cemetery. It's an area that was very unfamiliar to them when they met with George Washington in 1793. And it's as if they're trying to find their way out of the graveyard, but they're not quite sure where to go or how to get home. There's also visitors to the graveyard at St. Peter's Church who claim that they've seen a mist in the shape of a horse-drawn carriage galloping through the cemetery, passing straight through the headstones, the trees, even the fence that surrounds the graveyard. This location is a very popular stop on ghost tours in the city of Philadelphia. So if you ever come to visit the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, make sure you take the time to visit St. Peter's Episcopal Church on Pine Street and see if you can find those unmarked headstones that commemorate the spot where those Native American chiefs gave their lives. 
Since we're on Pine Street, we're going to take a walk a few blocks down from 3rd over to 6th Street, where everyone knows the legend of the Hag of Pine Street. According to Philadelphia legend, and any Philly old-timers with whom you can set a spell, there's a story of an elderly woman who died in one of the houses on Pine Street, although which house, no one is certain, only that it was within the block between 6th and 7th Streets. She still haunts the house and the street in Old City. Some people see her glaring out of a window. She doesn't look to be all that pleased. And she's often waving her cane at those that are younger than her as if to say, get off my lawn. Although some call her the hag of Pine Street, others refer to her as a witch and say that she especially hated children. She would scream and wave her cane at them in life when they passed her house. After she died, her spirit decided to remain in Old City, harassing anyone whom she didn't feel should be walking up and down Pine Street. Noises are said to come from one of the houses on Pine. Sometimes it's described as a moaning or groans that sound as if someone is in pain, but others describe it as wailing screams. Sometimes the ghost of the hag or the witch whichever you prefer, actually appears outside on the street, especially when children or couples are passing by. Now, there's a second part to this legend, but it's been very hard to find any details about it. Some people claim a woman moved into one of the vacant properties on Pine Street between 6th and 7th, believed to be the house that belonged to the Hag of Pine Street. And this woman, along with the help of a voodoo priest, was finally able to send the hag spirit along to its final destination. I don't know that that actually happened, because even to this day, there are people that claim to hear those wails and cries coming from somewhere along that short block on Pine Street. Occasionally, if you glance up at the second-story windows of some of these houses, you'll see the outline of a very old woman waving a cane in the air. Come to me, the men in the dark said, or else you won't see the sunset. I didn't see this as a threat, so he screamed at me until I bled. This is so exciting. I'm fangirling so big right now. Like, you have no idea. I can't believe this is happening. We're on Hillbilly Horror Stories. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We are. We think we're funny. You're not so typical mother-daughter podcast. I am Maya. I am the daughter. And to my front is Leslie, my mother. Yes, we are so excited. We are so excited to be able to share a little bit of some creepy stories. We thought we would make it personal, and we're going to share a few personal stories. Yeah, a couple of, creepy things of our own. Yeah. Because yeah. of Halloween. Real. Obviously. Let's get real and make it personal. Maria is so real. Oh. I am so real. <laughs> Who wants to start? Do you want to start? Um Or do you want me to start? I don't know. I'll start how I'll know. start I'll start with a you lighter start. one. I'll start with a lighter one. Because Okay. A little we'll ease into it a little bit. Mine aren't mine aren't too bad. Yeah. Let's build up a yeah. little bit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll start off easy. Yeah. Yep. And we'll get to the creepy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is a long, long time ago when your brother Josh was maybe a couple of months old. And I like 25 was... years ago probably, right? Yeah, 25 years ago, I guess. Yeah. Oh, gosh. My goodness. Okay. <laughs> so it was a long time ago, but it, honestly, I remember this like it was yesterday. Um, so I was sitting on your 
grandmother and grandpa's couch. And they were in, you know, their chairs over there. And we're just, you know, sitting there. We were chatting. But Josh would not stop crying. And I could not calm him. I did everything. You know, you go through the list. You, you know, everything's fine, right? Yep. Diaper change, fed, birth, the whole bit. And he just was hysterical. Oh and I was exhausted. So I am just defeated, feeling so defeated, sitting on the couch, holding Josh, trying to get him to calm down. And then suddenly over my left shoulder, as if somebody was standing behind me on the couch, which was impossible because the couch was up against a wall. Ooh. All of a sudden, it was like somebody leaned over my shoulder and went, shh. <laughs> it's still, oh, it still gets me. So it is, it oh. was not, it was not malicious. It wasn't like, it, was calm. it wasn't it was like, a, shut weird. the heck up, kid. Like, <laughs> it was like yeah. weirdly calm. It was, yeah, no, I mean, no, not you. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the intention was to be soothing, but it did not soothe me. No. I was <laughs> no. very taken aback and I just kind of froze and I looked over at my mom and dad and grandma, who's yeah. super chill with this stuff because yeah, she was like very sensitive. Very, yeah. She looks over at me. She was like, yeah, we heard it too. Like, Don't worry. No big deal. And Josh the little stopped baby. crying. Oh, my gosh. He calmed himself down from that. So, yeah, the shush Ooh. story is quite intense for me. I don't, yeah. I don't have a, like those kinds a lot of my experience are very vague like some some random times i'll get the feeling that i'm literally being watched do you ever get it in the know. same place all the time though do you ever get it where it's like every time in this same room or in this same spot i feel that or is it just splatted? no i feel like it follows me yeah no yeah you got somebody that happens you. i'm not sure if this is connected to being like feeling weird all the time but my surrey on my phone pops up all the time in dead silence yeah right beside me it turned on it dinged and it was asking stuff something like how do i get out of here or something like that my gosh so that was the question that came up that apparently but it was yeah but it was kind of choppy like how can when can out yeah here and it's not, it, do, it doesn't happen just once or twice. Like, it happens Yeah, you told me a that while. stuff like that I happens tell, yeah, a lot. But. It does. I swear one time it says something about a prison. And then Suri was like, oh, here are the nearby prisons to you. Maya. What? It's And, and again, it's always choppy sentences. So it's like, why can't I? And yeah. then Suri's like, and oh, then. I don't know. Why can't you, Maya? And I'm just like, oh, oh <laughs> what the heck? Um, What's your next one? Um, okay, let's talk about um, sticky footsteps. Okay. Sticky footsteps are Love gross. it. So, Love it. <laughs> you know the sound that basically sticky bare feet make on a hardwood floor? <laughs> yeah, it's like... <laughs> yeah, like kind of suction cuppy, but yeah, like not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like that, right? I could hear from my side walking down to the, to the foot of the bed and around to his side of the bed, these sticky footsteps Mm. okay now of course you hear this and you try to justify it and then you're debating with yourself that you're you're like oh i'm in an apartment building yeah like something else i totally didn't hear that it was probably upstairs and it was muffled so it sounds like it's down here whatever so you start to to justify and explain it away it bothered me so much that i was like i need to ask right so i asked him i said did you hear that and he's like what like the footsteps and i went oh my god so he did hear it too so i kind of got more wigged out because it validated that i actually heard it so then we're quiet 
And then you hear them from his side back around to my side. So now it's whatever it was is now beside me again. And we both immediately bolted upright. And it was just standing by that bed with you guys. So Ah! it was like beside me. And so I'm sort of leaning over into like his side because I feel like something is right there. Ah! Because that's where it ended, right beside me. So we didn't know what to do. We didn't want to get up. We didn't want to stay there. We didn't... You're like, you're like, what do I, I do? Wanna, right? So, yeah. So we ended up just getting out of bed, running into the living room, cuddling up on the couch, and just sitting there all night. Like, we just did not go back oh in the room. Needless gosh. to say, I moved out of that apartment real soon. Oh. Yeah. 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 My last one for me is pretty much a reoccurring dream. Oh my gosh, you're going to talk about that? It's so scary. It creeps me out so bad. It's so creepy and it's like, it happens all the time. Like, I'm 18 now. I felt like it happened when I was like 9 or 10 or something. And it just keeps on happening every once in a while. Could be every couple years. or, Or like, I don't, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. Like, I feel like I'm in a dark room and there's a spotlight right above me and I feel heavy. I feel like I'm being watched. I don't know which direction to go. I feel like I'm just in a huge dark room and the only light source is like a spotlight right above me. So I'm standing there. I don't know what to do and I feel be I'm feeling being watched. So I just like, I turn every which way and I'm like looking around my shoulder and then I hear like a deep, like heavy, raspy breathing behind me. (laughs) And like, like, this happens every time. So I hear that, and so I get wigged out, so I start walking. I hear slow footsteps behind me, like clicking of, like, a boot, just walking behind me as I'm speed walking away. So you're walking fast, but these footsteps are right behind you walking slow. Yeah, not directly behind me, but following yeah, me. Yeah. So then on both sides of me, there are brick walls. And as I keep walking, the brick walls keep getting narrower and narrower and narrower Mm. as I keep going. So I hear these footsteps behind me, and and then I start, like, doing it. Like, I start jogging a little bit, and I keep turning around to look over my shoulder, and I don't see anyone, but I can picture exactly what the man looks like in my head. Okay. Like, he's tall. Mm. He's lanky. He's wearing a suit jacket, and he has really long legs and large feet. And he has, like, really long, creepy fingers. Uh, And he's pale. He's wearing a top hat. And he has a huge grin on his face. Oh, my God. This whole time, he's just walking at a slow pace. I never see him, but I can picture exactly what he looks like. Mm, That's terrifying. So, I'm walking, and then I start running. I start sprinting, and the guy is right behind me. I know he's right behind me. So that no matter how fast you go, he still like, continues to go. Like, I'm sprinting, and he's, and still he's just right walking there. right behind me. So then I hit the end of the brick wall, and it's like I hit in an alley. So I get there, and I can still feel him walking up behind me. Oh, and I'm, like, I'm trying to figure out what to do, if I can climb up or not, but the brick wall just goes straight up like a skyscraper. Yeah. So... Yeah, I have so much anxiety right now. Listen so to the story. Oh I my turn gosh. to the brick wall dead end, and I start banging on it, and I'm like, Maya, you have to wake up. Oh, so you figure out you're dreaming. I knew I was dreaming. I knew I was dreaming, and I was like, Maya, you have to wake up. This guy is going to get you. I'm banging my fist onto this brick wall. So screaming, hard like, wake screaming. Up, wake I'm like, Maya, wake up, wake up. You have to wake up. And I can feel him like, oh my gosh, I have goosebumps. I have goosebumps right <laughs> like, now. And then I wake up and I, 
I'm not, what is it called, a lucid dreamer. Like, you know that yes. you're, I, I don't have those dreams that I know. And you wake up and you remember your dreams yeah. and all that, yeah. So do you know in your dream that right when the dream first starts, you're dreaming? Or is it no. later, all of a sudden, you realize you're dreaming? Yeah, I didn't know I was wall. dreaming. Like, I was at the wall, and then I, I looked down, and I'm like, I'm dreaming. And so the, and like, this, this guy's going to get me. every single time? Yeah. The same way? Yeah. Wow. So, what if the guy in the dream is the guy who's trying to talk to you through your Siri? <gasps> Stop. Heebie-jeebies. Stop look at, it. Look at those Stop. goosebumps, girl. I got goosebumps like Stop crazy. Stop it. But it has been such a great honor yes. and pleasure. Thank you, Hillbilly Horror Source. Oh, my God. I know. We are so excited. So thank you so much for inviting us to be a part of this uh, special Halloween episode. And hopefully you guys enjoyed listening to us. And (laughs) whether you laughed with us or laughed at us, it doesn't really matter because we we think think we're we're funny. funny. Oh my gosh. Such a good one. I know. (laughs) That was a pretty good take. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you guys for listening. We've been We Think We're Funny. I've been Maya. That's been Leslie. You guys can listen to us on iTunes, soon on Spotify, and on the Podbean app. And you can find us on Facebook at We Think We're Funny Podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram at WTWF Podcast. Good? Good. Good. Done. Done. See ya. Hi, Jerry and Tracy. It's Fitz from Knock Once VS, and I've got a bit of a spooky story for you. When Lil and I first got together, we lived in a mid-terrace Victorian townhouse in Northamptonshire in the UK. And I'm not kidding you, it was one of the most active buildings I've ever even visited, let alone lived in. Almost everyone that came to the house, or at least stayed overnight, had an experience there. And the most common was for people to be sleeping on the sofa, to be woken up in the middle of the night with somebody standing over them and calling or shouting their name. Luckily I never experienced this for myself, possibly because I never had to sleep on the sofa. Uh, That wasn't the only thing that went on there though. There was so much, it's difficult to remember it all. One of the rooms upstairs, it would sound on occasion like somebody was throwing furniture around, literally like tipping over bookcases and stomping, so much so that the light fittings on the ground floor would shake, and there would be nobody in the room, and if you went in, it wouldn't look like anything had been touched. That part of the house was also not connected to any of the neighbouring houses, so it's difficult to imagine how it could have conducted sound through there. We would see what we called skitterers, which are kind of like shadow figures, but they were either sort of too tall or too short to look like humans, and moved like a spider walking across carpet, that kind of quick and stop, quick and stop movement that catches the eye. A lot of the activity seemed to be focused on the stairs and the first floor landing. One of the worst things about the house was the toilet. The 
bath and basin were in a separate room to the toilet and for some reason the toilet had a frosted glass door so when you were sat doing your business you could see out not clearly but enough to be able to see if someone was outside of the door and of course at three o'clock in the morning when you're going to the toilet you would frequently see shadow figures walking past the bathroom and the people we lived with were not quiet they would stomp about the house it definitely wasn't them and of course they were partially transparent so it was obviously not an actual person everyone that lived in that house developed the skill of closing your eyes in if you left the bedroom in the middle of the night close your eyes run down the stairs go to the bathroom with your eyes closed and run back upstairs again I'm normally pretty fastidious about washing my hands after going to the bathroom, but there, no chance. You just got in, got out, and dealt with it in the morning. As if that wasn't terrifying enough, there was one occasion when I was on the first floor landing again, and I saw what looked like the head and shoulders and left arm on the banister of a little girl, there were no little girls living with us and it wasn't the full apparition of a girl but it was enough to send me running back upstairs to our bedroom again. The third most terrifying experience and this one literally pinned me in the house for an afternoon. I was in our room on the top floor and I was working on the computer and I thought I'd just nip to the shop to, to go and buy something. I can't remember what it was now. But as I got up and walked towards the door, I started opening the door and I heard a whisper in my ear just go, No! Of course, all the hairs on my arms stood up and I jumped back from the door as if it was on fire and I didn't know what to do. I was terrified. So after sort of five minutes or so, just literally being stunned and not knowing what to do i thought i would try this again so i walked towards the door grabbed the door handle start to pull the door and again i hear this voice no so of course immediately i turned on the tv turned it up as loud as it would go turned on the stereo made as much noise as i possibly could and then just huddled on the bed and i can't remember how long i waited there but perhaps 20 minutes half an hour of just you know, sitting in the noise so that I didn't hear it again before I could get up and I still left the TV on, turned it down a little bit so it was a bit more bearable and just sat and worked on the computer and I did not leave that room until Lil came back. I honestly don't know what it was, I don't know why it didn't want me to leave the room, but something did not want me to leave. There was just so much that went on in that house, but I think that was one of the most frightening like the in the bathroom you were at your most vulnerable and your bedroom is kind of your safe space so having those two areas be not exactly a place of comfort and relaxation really did sort of take it out of me luckily we've since moved out of the building and we now have a different house and whilst we do have the odd unusual occurrence here it's certainly nowhere near the frequency or anywhere near as terrifying as that house having said that the activity here is increasing a little bit at the moment 
I'm not sure if it's anything to do with the time of year or whether it's the fact that we recently went on a ghost hunt, but I saw somebody at the bottom of the stairs the other day. Lil's been hearing me come, well, say me. She's been hearing somebody come through the front door that she assumed was me. So we've got one of these three-point locking systems that makes a, a big ch-chunk whenever you open the door. Um, and funnily enough, I heard that the other day as well, and obviously no one had come into the house, so things are picking up here, but again, still nothing anywhere near as terrifying as that old house. Well, thank you for listening to my story. Catch you later. Hello everyone, this is Stephen Simmons with the Wild and Wonderful Paranormal Encounters Podcast. And Happy Halloween. I thought I would share a personal story with you guys tonight, but first I'd like to take a second and thank Jerry and Tracy for the invitation to share my story. My story takes place about 10 years ago in Gettysburg, PA. Um... I have been to Gettysburg more times than I can count. Uh, since I was a little kid to just last year, I made a little trip there. This trip to Gettysburg, I was taking it with my grandparents and my uh, one of my younger cousins. We uh, we got there the first day and, of course, went to the battlefields and, and normal sites that we always would go and, and visit. And, uh, you know, we, we would stay always close to downtown close to walking distance to different shops and different places to see um and this time me and my cousin were talking because you know we had our whole own room and we were discussing about different things and we started talking about ghost hunting and and ghosts and everything and paranormal and we started talking about doing a a ghost hunt in gettysburg and I, i had told him i was like i'm up for it if you are so the next day we got up and we looked at some of the ghost hunts that were in town and the ghost tours and and finally we we chose one uh at the farnsworth house um and paid for our tickets and everything and we planned when we were going to go so that evening we our time for our tour come up and we met where we were supposed to meet and we had a, a small group it was maybe 10 people in the group it wasn't a real big group so it was kind of nice um so we're there and the tour guide he starts off by telling us some stories about the area in front of the house and some of the ghost stories and some of the history and then uh, he proceeds to take us over across the street over to where the high school is and uh, over towards where the football field is and um, if you don't know in Gettysburg because it's a, a, a national park um, you're not allowed on the battlefields after dark um, but because this school is public land you're allowed there after dark as long as you're not doing anything that you're not supposed to um now the football field when it was built they supposedly they dug up a bunch of the ground there and they found close to 200 bodies in a mass grave is what we were told um and it's at the base of uh cemetery hill um where 
a lot of the battle happened. I mean, the school was basically on the battlefield, um, but it's just public land, so you're allowed to go. Now, and while we were there, in the, the field next to the, the football field, we didn't really have anything happen. Um, we had some, uh, you know, EMF spikes, uh, nothing too crazy, just maybe, you know, something with the, the equipment, but nothing that you could say, oh, we, we caught something. So the next spot, we went to the attic of the building. And it's, I think, a three-story house with a basement um, and an attic. Um, so they took us through the building, up the stairs, and it's a bed and breakfast normally. You can rent rooms. They also have a restaurant there. Um, so we went up the steps to the attic, and the attic has... Uh, some artifacts and glass cases uh, along the, the one wall um, that you can look at and then in the other wall it has bleachers two sets um, so me and my cousin we walk in and we walk clear to the end towards the the side wall of the house and I'm sitting closest to the wall and on the first bleacher and then he is sitting on the bleacher right behind me um, to my right and our backs are to a wall Everybody else in the group is to our right. There's no one to our left. So the tour guide, he's telling us stories about the, the sharpshooters that were in the attic and you know some of the people that had died in the attic and, and everything. And as I'm sitting there, um, I, of course, they, they provided some EMF detectors, and I'm messing with it. And uh, I'm taking some pictures with my phone at the time. I get this feeling like someone is, is rubbing my ear really lightly, um, almost like a bug is crawling on my ear. So I reach up and I pull my ear, and uh, before I know it, it happens to my other ear, and it goes from my left to my right. And I'm like, well, that's weird, so I do it again. And as soon as I pull on my right ear, it pulls on my left ear. Um, it's real light, just like someone just kind of brushing up against your ear, kind of messing with you. And I, I, you know, pull on it to get it to stop, and it happens to my right ear right after it. And I just turn around real quick and look at my cousin. I'm like, are you messing with my ear? He gives me this look like, you're nuts. He's like, no, I'm, I'm messing with my camera. I was like, okay. And I sit there, and I'm waiting for it to happen again. And it doesn't happen. So I'm like, okay, maybe it's, you know, it's just me. And just about the time that the tour guide's like, all right, you know, we can all get up. We're going to head down to the basement. It happens again to my left ear where it started. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, what in the world? So, I, you know, I pull my ear, and, and we all get up, and we walk down to the basement. Now, the basement is set up like a what it would look like that time period funeral. Um, a fake viewing coffin up front and chairs. And everybody can just sit wherever they want. And the basement is relatively dark. Um, and so you, we all take a seat and we're sitting there. And I kind of just distance myself from the rest of the group just so I can see where everybody's at in case I hear something or see something. And the tour guide's up front and he's telling his stories and, and everything. And he gets to the point where he starts talking about a spirit pulling on people's ears and I couldn't help myself but say are you serious and he's like yeah why and I said I told him about what happened in the attic and he says that happens all the time he said we have at least one person it seems every night or someone that stays here every time that it 
something messes with their ears. And he said, you're not the first person. And I, I was like, this is, that was my first time I ever really truly experienced something that I couldn't explain. Um, and I tried to figure out what it was, and I, I couldn't. And that just really has stuck with me ever since then. Um, and that's why I think I, I'm so into this stuff. So that is my little story for you guys tonight. And I would like to thank everybody for listening. I would like to thank Hillbilly Horror Stories for putting on the best paranormal podcast out there. And I hope you all come and give me a listen once I get things up and running. Um, happy Halloween and don't eat too much candy. Hey, this is Jeremy from the podcast we listen to, podcast and Facebook group. Jerry and Tracy, thank you for letting me be a part of your Halloween special. I really do appreciate it, and you guys have a very happy Halloween. I wanted to read you a little story that I found on BuzzFeed. It's from somebody named Anna Carolina Paris, and she says, My mother always complained that she had a lot of nightmares, but she would never say what her dreams were about. One day, while we were at the mall, I suggested that she wait in the food court while I was getting our food. When I returned with our meals, she had a strange look on her face, so I asked her if she was okay. She said she was fine, so we finished our meals and left. As we were riding down the escalator to leave, I turned to look at my mother and I almost had a heart attack, because standing behind her was a man in old-fashioned clothing holding one of my mother's shoulders and looking at me with a very angry expression. She saw the shock on my face right away and shouted at me, asking what was wrong. When I told her what she had seen, she started crying and said, You just described the man that tries to kill me every night in my nightmares. Welcome to a special edition of Nightshade by Lake Avalon Entertainment. Today, we're taking you on a trip across the pond to a place where many of us in Lake Avalon find our ancestral roots. Old Uncle Mickey has been telling us that there are mysteries that have followed us across the sea for as long as anyone can remember. Of course, they were all fishtails, right? Judge for yourself. Holy Mary, Mother of God. <coughs> oh. The old chap was winded and could hardly stand as he crossed the threshold to Emmett's place. The finest bar and grill among those in Primshire. A cozy village, not too far from Dublin. You'll not believe what me poor eyes just let witness to. The sky was grey and the wind was fierce. And as usual for the patrons therein the old stone structure, 
The hour was late, but of no concern. Mickey shut the large wooden door and made sure to double-check that he had latched it firmly, a total of four times, a habit that he had practiced since he was just a wee one, but that had become much more frequent and to ever-increasing measures over the years. That is, if ever anyone was more superstitious than Lord Mickey, the folks of Primshire had never made his acquaintance. And Mickey's gaunt countenance was no surprise to the regulars sitting about the warm and friendly pub, for he was known for having a flair for the dramatics, especially since his Clara passed. He staggered toward the bar, gasping. His words garbled. <coughs> what do you say this time, huh? Oh. Little green men? I tell you. <laughs> I tell you. And you'll not believe it no more than I believe it myself. As it had to doubt not fifteen miles from this very spot. He fumbled through his pocket and pulled out a fistful of coins and cast them upon the bar counter. I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've oh, heard this yeah. one before. I'll tell you, but first me needs a drink. Emmet, I'll have the usual. He took notice of the fifty-some-odd eyes scattered about, burrowing a curious yet condescending stare upon him. Better make it a double. Emmet cupped his hand over the change that landed closest to him and pushed it back in the old-timer's direction. Mickey, you know your money's not good here. Just warm us, won't you? Warm us with your yarn. Mickey vigorously consumed the elixir that Emmett prepared for him. Then he wiped the drip from his jaw and with a sigh began to impart a story. Come on, Mickey. You didn't spit it out already, Mick. Oh, have mercy, dear Lord. But me believes the end is upon us. I uh. spare the groans. Me knows what you're all thinking. But old Mickey's not twisting the truth about this. Not this time. What me saw. Spit it out already. Oh, no oh, goodness, Mickey, <sighs> not another one. <coughs> oh, what me saw. Or saints preserve us. Twas something I never saw the likes of before. And pray I never see again. Well, your oh, Mickey told them as best as he could recollect. The details of earlier that day. The way it had started, and all that had led up to the moment when terrible things pervaded what was otherwise a typical day in Primshire. He and the Quinn brothers were engaged in idle chat about the recent drought that had plagued their land and put them all on edge. Farming was their life's vein, you see, and no one in Ireland dared ever speak the dreaded word famine. Still, it festered day by day and weighed heavy on their hearts, and the ever-promising but reluctant clouds were oppressive and seemed to mock them. Would the sky ever deliver anything again? Mickey had his doubts. The three men shared a flask of whiskey and took notice of how dry Phineas O'Toole's farm had become. Well, Phineas ain't gonna pray his way through this drought, that's for certain. Hey. <coughs> Connor Connor, you best lay off before What is that? Just the wind Sounds like Like screaming Then something in the distance Began to stir Seriously, brother 
You know you ain't got no stomach for... Thunder. Garby. Oh, great. Oh. Well, me thought Connor dead before he found a handle to stop the showers. God. Then, who chanced along but Brendan Kane and his new lady friend Regan Barnes. Can we offer your boys a hand? <laughs> I may be in all your stomach. <sighs> I told you, Connor. <laughs> now look what you've done yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, they all started laughing. <laughs> then so did I, as I realized the comedy of it. <laughs> you guys, you guys stop laughing. That's not funny. I could have, I could have choked to death. I could have died. Oh my goodness, Lord. <laughs> so there's a lot of us were Two drunks, a couple of young lovers in a bio-spitting machine When suddenly What, what, what is it? Is the sky on fire? Saw the glow down by the water on the way into Primshire Thought it was the fields on fire, seeing how it's been so dry Ain't like no fire I ever seen Ain't no storm, neither. What is it then, Mickey? I... I don't know. But me thinks we better run and find cover. Now! I... I knew then that it was a swarm. But they were plummeting to the earth like bombers from the war. But they weren't no planes. And they weren't human, neither. Most of the livestock made successful flight into the hills. Except for one fabled cow. Oh, the poor animal was swept up into the sky. Run! Run, Regan, run! The poor beast. Like a water balloon being dropped from the tenth floor of a high-rise. And I don't know what they are. But they seemed attracted by fear. Like they could smell it. And then Brendan. Oh, Brendan. He ran with his Reagan as fast as he could, trying to get her. And confidentially, he had confided in me not two weeks ago. He thought her the one, and had his eye on a little ring at Shay's pawn shop. I don't think he'll be needing it. Not now. Nor knew they ripped her away. His rig. Back into the sky. Goat. He held her severed arm all the way down into a nearby ravine. Dear God, help us! Your too, please. And everything on it had been destroyed. I, I can't lift it, brother! Gradient I haven't the strength! Would they try to find refuge under the debris? Something evil has come to Ireland, people. And I don't know how to describe them. But they're... They're either not from this world, 
or they're wakened now, long since forgotten. And as for the Quinn boys... Help me, Grady! Oh, dear God, help me! I can't hang on! Dear Father, forgive us our debts. Oh, poor Grady, my good friend. Hold my hand, brother. It's not me. Demons! That's what you are! Grady! God rest his soul. No! And as for his brother, remember me telling you about the cow. I hope they're choking. Where are I? I just, I just crouched down and prayed, prayed for mercy, prayed for salvation, prayed for, for. The sound of snores came in the wake of Mickey's unfinished yarn, and laughter followed. Well, I don't think he'll be needing another round. To the horror of Emmett and his patrons, a deeper, more foreboding sound carried over it, as if something, and they all hoped that a storm, was tearing its way, splinter by splinter, to the rooftop of the old tavern. Join us again soon for another episode of Nightshade. All of us at Lake Avalon Entertainment would like to offer a big thank you to Hillbilly Horror Stories for their generous offer to feature our podcast. Jerry and Tracy are the best. Give them a visit at hillbillyhorrorstories.com and check out what they have to offer. Want to hear more from Nightshade? Subscribe to Nightshade on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Visit LakeAvalonEntertainment.com for more content, information, show notes, and extras. Thank you for listening, and may your life be far from normal. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban, and we're from the Bloody Murder Podcast. And we've got an Australian ghost story to tell you. Happy Halloween. On the 15th of October 1980, British tourists Beth and John Thompson were returning to their hotel in Melbourne's CBD after spending the weekend driving on the Great Ocean Road in Victoria's southwest. It was 11.50am and John and Beth were crossing the Yarra River around halfway across the massive Westgate Bridge when the temperature suddenly dropped. John was surprised as it had been a warm spring morning and the car windows were down. Beth shivered and wound up the windows. John looked out the windscreen and was surprised to see black and grey mist rolling over the bridge. 
Traffic had been light, but now there were no cars around at all. Not that John could see very far ahead of them through the fog anyway. He slowed the rental car down as a large rumbling noise started to fill the now freezing air. The bridge began to sway on its foundations. Trying not to panic, John thought to himself it couldn't be the wind socks dotted along the bridge as they were limp and still. The rumbling got louder until it turned into a roar. Beth put her hands over her ears. John turned the heater on and sped up, saying loudly, We need to get off this bridge as soon as possible. That was when a deafening, crunching sound of metal being scraped against concrete could be heard, followed by the loud twang of cables snapping. John looked ahead to see a large section of bridge fall away. He slammed the brakes on. In the rearview mirror, John watched in horror as the road behind them cracked and fell away too, pushing large puffs of concrete dust into the air. He thought about turning the car around, but there was nowhere to go. The railing along the edge of the bridge was now gone. Beth looked down to see the river, 160 feet below them. She noticed pieces of the bridge had fallen on top of some low wooden buildings that dotted the riverbank, causing large explosions and fire with thick black smoke to billow into the air. Beth and Jean looked at each other in fright as a loud crack could be heard beneath them. John and Beth closed their eyes and held hands as the bridge gave way, preparing to embrace the ebony doom below. The piercing sound of a car horn caused them to open their eyes. They were back on the bridge, surrounded by traffic, squinting against the once more bright and sunny day. Shaking, John and Beth Thompson sped back to their hotel, rang their airline and changed their flight. They both thought the sooner they were back in England, the better. On their way to the airport the next day, Beth shyly asked the taxi driver about the Westgate Bridge. The driver passed her a copy of yesterday's newspaper. The headline read, 10th Anniversary of Westgate Bridge Collapse. At 11.50am on October 15th, 1970, the 367-foot span between piers 10 and 11 collapsed and fell 160 feet to the ground and water below. 35 construction workers were killed and 18 injured, making it Australia's worst industrial accident. Many of those who perished were on their lunch break beneath the structure in the workers' huts which were crushed by the falling span. Others were working on and inside the girder when it fell. The whole 2,000-tonne mass plummeted into the Yarra River with an explosion of gas, dust and mangled metal that shook buildings hundreds of metres away. Nearby houses were splattered in flying mud. The roar of the impact, the explosion and the fire that followed could be clearly heard over 12 miles away. On the following morning, October 16th, Premier of Victoria Sir Henry Bolte announced that a royal commission would be set up immediately to look into the cause of the disaster. The Prime Minister, John Gorton, said, I am sure the whole of Australia is shocked and saddened by the serious accident at the Westgate Bridge. Please extend my deepest sympathies to all those families to whom this tragic event has brought such grief. The Royal Commission concluded on July 14, 1971. It attributed the failure of the bridge to two causes, the structural design by designers Freeman Fox and Partners and an unusual method of construction by World Services and Construction, the original contractors of the project. The incident had considerable implications for Australia's workplace safety laws. After the accident, workers were given greater input into workplace safety committees, gaining the right to question the wisdom and action of their supervisors regarding potentially dangerous practices in the workplace. 
Six twisted fragments of the collapsed bridge can be found adorning the gardens in the engineering faculty of Monash University's Clayton campus. It is said by students that they are there to remind engineers of the consequences of their errors. Commemorations have been held on October 15th every year since the collapse. Construction resumed in 1972 with the bridge being completed in 1978. All up, the Westgate Bridge took 10 years of construction at a cost of $202 million. Police data shows one suicide occurs every three weeks at the Westgate Bridge. There's always been something about it that has drawn devastated people desperate to leave this life behind. In 2004, a coroner's report recommended anti-suicide barriers be erected on the bridge to deter people from attempting to end their lives. In 2008, the bodies of a mother in her late 20s and her 18-month-old baby were found on the riverbank below the bridge, prompting further calls to erect a suicide barrier. There have been multiple incidents of police officers dangling off the side of the bridge while holding on to would-be jumpers. A 2000 Royal Melbourne Hospital study on people who have jumped from the bridge found dozens of cases between 1991 and 1998. Seven people survived the fall. Of those who jumped off the Westgate Bridge, 31% fell on land. In January 2009, four-year-old Darcy Freeman was thrown off the bridge by her abusive father and later died in hospital. In April 2011, Arthur Freeman was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Following the incident, a suicide barricade of concrete crash barriers topped with a welded mesh fence was erected. By June, it had been claimed that the fence had prevented many suicides. The base of the bridge, where the original workers' huts were crushed in the collapse of 1970, is now a public park. Local residents refused to go near it after sundown, as there had been many reports of strange sounds at night, of children crying and ghostly figures of workmen on top of the bridge frantically waving their arms, as if to signal impending danger. Recently, a toilet block directly below Span 4, the section of the bridge that crushed the workers' huts, burnt to the ground under mysterious circumstances. In 2018, most of the 5 million people that live in Melbourne don't even know about the bridge falling to the ground in 1970. But there are still a few older Melburnians that remember and refuse to drive over the bridge at all. Happy Halloween! <laughs> Goblins. Goblin be gone. Goblin be gone. Hi guys, this is Tipsy Stories Podcast. My name is Patty from Poland. Hi, I'm Frida, just Frida. And we are a trashy podcast to get drunk and just talk about like creepy stories. Yeah, good. Come listen to my trash. Come just yes, don't judge. And we have accents and we fuck up and we have no details whatsoever. So, so enjoy. yeah. So if you like trash, come listen to me. Hi. Okay. So <laughs> Oh, happy Halloween by the way. Oh yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this is a surprise from Hillbilly Horror Stories. Oh my god, that's really hard to say. Hillbilly's Horror Stories. So, thank you for listening. Spooky Halloween. And enjoy the show. <laughs> that made no sense. <laughs> but okay. Okay. We don't so. even speak English. Right? Okay. <laughs> okay, so this story, it's from Chile. And Chile? it's called the Inca Lagoon. <laughs> so, when the Incas dominated the pre-Columbian Chile, they performed their rituals and religious ceremonies 
in the Cordilla de los Andes. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. the Andes, the mountains. Also, and shit. this story has nothing. This story has nothing to do with Halloween. It does not, but it's cool, and I like it. Okay, let's oh. go. Okay, and it was the perfect place for those who were considered to be children of the sun. I have no clue what that means. Okay. I didn't bother to look it up. <laughs> too, too long. <laughs> we're <Yeah>. trashy. <laughs> According to the legend, the Inca Ili Yupakin okay. fell in love with the beautiful princess Corale. Yeah. Okay. They decided like to Corale? give <laughs> that is Corale. No, this it's an it's an indigenous name, but we know Corale. Okay. <laughs> Corale? Who knows? Okay. They decided Corale. To, <laughs> that is racist. Like, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> okay. You can probably cut that out. So they decided to get married at the summit that was near the shores of the lagoon. The uh, shores of the lagoon. The I got shores you guys. Of the I lagoon. got you. Yes. Also, another trashy part for Frida's accent when she's fucked up gets it's, worse. Oh, way worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at, after the wedding, uh, the princess was supposed to walk down the slope of the hill and wearing a fancy dress and some flashy ass jewelry. Uh huh. The road was really narrow and it was covered with pebbles, uh -huh. which made the princess slide and then she fell into the void. And the, of what, that what? She fell down and died. Okay, well, that's not a happy ending. No, definitely Which not. is never in our stories. Yeah. <laughs> so, the Inca guy, he heard the princess scream, so he rushed to her side. However, when he got there, she was already dead. Okay, then. He was super sad about it. So he decided to bury her body in the depths of the lagoon. Mm -hmm. When her body was submerged, the water magically turned into... I can't read that word anymore. I'm too drunk. So he turned into like a green color. You know, like a jade color. A what? A jade. Jade? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Emerald? Um, um, yeah. No, don't know how to say that. I'm not even going to try. Okay. So it was the same color as a princess's eyes. Since it was said that the sands... It is said that, like, oh, my God. You got it, Frida. Just take a breather. You got it. Since it is said that the Laguna of the Inca, located in Portillo, is charmed, and on the full moon nights, the soul of Ili Yupanqui roams the quiet surface of the lagoon. Sometimes you can also hear the cries of the Inca guy when he remembers his beloved. So is the Inca guy dead now too? Like yeah, he, he died just, there like too. Like he just chilling there with her? No, he. It was a long time ago. He died there. So now he sees her body, and I mean her spirit, and mm -hmm. then he'll cry about it. Yeah, and it's a really cool place. It's like a real place. I'll Damn. show you photos. Yeah, show me photos. We posted our Instagram once this comes out. You can follow us on Tipsy Stories Podcast on Instagram. And oh wow, that's gorgeous. Yeah. And she just, she just, like, chills there? Yeah, sometimes you time. can see her spirit, I guess. This is a better photo. Oh, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, cool. So, that's it. That's it. That's all we got for you today. Yeah. Uh, if you want to hear more of our stories, check us out. Tipsy Stories Podcast. Have a spooky Halloween. Great Day of the Dead. And, and, and the Saints Day, too. Whatever you believe. My uh, name is Patty from Poland. I'm Frida, and... We are proof of this message. Bye.
Hello, it's Lee Solway here from Realm of the Supernatural podcast and happy Halloween. Okay, so I'm going to share my Shadow Man story with you. Now this takes place a few years back when I was still in my late teens and a friend of mine was going out uh, on the lash as we say here and unfortunately a usual babysitter had let her down so she contacted me, uh, asked if I was free and would do her this huge favour of looking after her children for the night so I was at a loose end so I agreed. Now she only lived a few houses up the road from me and again I still live down the same street now it's a particularly usual street you know nothing out of the ordinary um, and the house itself my friend had lived in at that point for about two years and there was nothing untoward about the house you know no uh, ghost activity as such had ever happened there in the two years that she'd been there so no reason to sp- no reason to suspect anything at this point so I get there she goes out she's going to be back early hours in the morning uh, the kids were already asleep, so that was easy enough. I just sat down, watched a movie, uh, had a bit to eat and, uh, you know, and a few drinks. So we're getting on for about uh, half past three in the morning and she comes home. Uh, she finishes whatever she's eaten. And uh, after a bit of a brief chat, we decide to head upstairs to bed. So before going upstairs, obviously we turn all the lights out downstairs. And that just left a blue hue, if you like, from the digital display on the VCR recorder. So that's the only light we was working off. Now, she's walking ahead of me, a step ahead of me as we go up the stairs. And she's carrying a glass of water out in front of her. Uh, So we're going up the stairs. As we near the first landing, out the corner of my eye, I see movement. And... I'm just turning my head to have a look at what I, you know, this movement that I saw, because obviously there should be nothing. And remember, it's pitch black. The only light is this blue hue from the VCR. So to see, I see this movement again. And at this point, my friend was, her hand was starting to point in the direction I was looking. Uh, and what I can only describe stood in that corner was the silhouette of a man. Um... And again, the the only available light was this blue hue, and I say silhouette, it was almost like this being was a black hole and was sucking all available light. Now, the dark is not black, you know, the dark is blue to your eyes, and this creature was black, and I mean black. It had no features. No, no eyes, no mouth, nothing like that. Uh, for whatever reason, I felt like it was a man, although there was nothing dangling. Um, so, I don't know why I got that impression, but... When we saw him, and we both obviously seen him at the same time, he was actually trying to hide. So in the corner there, in the landing, he was pressing himself against the wall, almost trying to make himself invisible. But obviously that failed, and we'd both seen him, and uh, he knew the game was up. And or he lunged forward and pushed my friend backwards. Obviously, she stumbles back, and I managed to catch her, stop us both from falling down the stairs. At that point, she turns tail and, and runs past me on the staircase. Now, I'm still trying to work out what's going on, and, I, and I'm watching this uh, being. And 
he sort of steps backwards after pushing air and and runs along the the landing towards the master bedroom. Um, I hear his footsteps, you know, and he runs quite quickly. I mean, I could keep my eyes on him. It wasn't faster than the eye can keep up with, but he was moving quick. Now, the significant thing about that is that where he was running towards the master bedroom there, there's nowhere else to go on that landing. And the master bedroom door was shut, and it never opened at any point. So I head back downstairs, she's in hysterics, I go downstairs, try and calm her down, and she's telling me to go back up and find the burglar. Because uh, she's still assuming at this point that it must be a burglar, I mean, what else could it be? So, turn all the lights on, um, and I head back upstairs to check the bedrooms, obviously check the kids first, they were fine. Check the master bedroom, and there's nothing in there, which, you know, we, you know, obviously there's not going to be anything there. Go downstairs, and I try and explain to where that this isn't a burglar. Um, eventually, I calm her down. And ev- I mean, obviously, she was drunk, but um, <laughs> we did actually end up sleeping upstairs, you know, even though that thing had been seen up there. So that was a bit thingy. But the most puzzling thing about the whole experience for me is the fact that I almost felt. Um, you know you have those times in life where you see somebody and you recognise them but you can't remember where you recognise them from. Uh, that's the sort of feeling I got from this being. It was almost like I'd seen him before, which I'd never had. At that point, I'd never seen anything like this in my life. But for whatever reason, I felt like I'd seen this thing before. Um, almost recognised it to some point. And again, it had no features other than just being a silhouette of a man and absolute blackness. You know, blacker than black. You can't, unless you see it, you can't describe it. I mean, the closest thing you can really say is, like I say, black hole. Um, But that has always puzzled me, you know, why didn't I feel fear from this? You know, why why wasn't I terrified? You know, all this kind of thing. I've never really been able to explain that. Even to this day, I, I still struggle with that. Now, shortly after this had happened, maybe a week or so later, my friend actually had another experience in the house where she felt somebody crawl into the bed and whisper in her ear. Uh, and that was enough to make her move then. Uh, the two experiences put together, that was enough. And to be honest, I can't blame her. Well, that was my experience with a shadow man, and I won't blame you if you leave the light on tonight. Thanks for listening, and have a great Halloween. Jerry, Tracy, and all the Hillbilly Horror Story fans. Jerry, Tracy, and Ninja. This is Tammy and Bryce from Hollyweird Paranormal, and here are our spooky ghost tales. So my tale starts when I was 16, living in Spring, Texas at the time. When I was young, my family and I moved from New Orleans to Texas, and I remember one of my first friends that I made in Texas was a girl who lived in a haunted house. 
And that's how we became friends because I had this fascination with the paranormal and she supplied that fascination with true ghost stories. Now, the reason why these ghost stories were true was because her house was built several yards away from an old family cemetery that sat in the middle of our neighborhood. And on a clear day, you can see the cemetery from her backyard. And I know that her and her family had experienced a lot of strange occurrences, a lot. And a lot of that ceased when they built a fence separating their property from the property of where the graveyard was located. But some of the tales that she was sharing with me was one in particular of a apparition of a man who was dressed in a morning suit, top hat, and sported a handlebar mustache. And I know that this man was seen by her and her other siblings. And she hadn't seen this man since. But um, where my story begins was, uh, I want to say, when we were sophomores in high school. And I remember we were coming back from the movies. And it was just her, her mom and I. And her father and the rest of her siblings were out traveling. And they were out of the country. So it was just her and her mom staying at the house for two weeks by themselves. And I know that they weren't due back for another week and a half. So when we got to her house, we had dinner. Her mom retires to bed at nine o'clock. And we decided, you know, since we were teenagers, we're going to stay up and we're going to watch movies and we're going to eat candy and we're going to gossip. So we decided to watch movies in this rec area, which was a loft area located in the study. And the study is located between her living room and kitchen. And in order to enter the study, you go through a pair of French doors. And in order to get to the loft, you can actually go through the study and climb this spiral metal staircase. And from the loft, you can get access into the second floor of the house. So we put our pajamas on, we went through the study, we lock the doors behind us in the study, we climb up the metal staircase to the loft, and we started watching movies. Around 2.30, we're debating whether or not we should pop another movie in, and I asked her, out of nowhere, I just asked her, so have you ever had any other occurrences within, you know, the time that you guys built that fence. And she said, oh, every now and then, you know, we would get like little things that would happen. Doors and the doors would open and shut by themselves or, you know, I'd hear my name being called out when no one was there. Just minor things, but nothing recently. And then I told her, oh, maybe they got tired and bored trying to haunt you. And we kind of laughed and while we were laughing, it sounded like like books from the table downstairs were falling onto the floor. And and it, it just was a very, very loud and distinctive sound. It just sounded like books just falling onto the floor. And we just kind of stood there, quiet, almost in shock. And I was asking her, well is it your cats? Like, are are, the, are your cats in the house or were they in the study? I don't remember seeing them in there. And she said, no, they're all outside. And 
I don't know. I asked her, you know, does your mom sleepwalk? And she said, nope. We locked the doors. We locked the doors behind us when we were coming in. So no one or nothing should be in here with us. And after she said that, it sounded like, it sounded like what footsteps climbing up the metal staircase. And we just kind of like stood there in silence and shock. Our eyes were kind of growing wider and right wider by the second. And they were, and those footsteps were getting louder and louder. And my friend just looks at me and she has this look of fear in her face and she just grabs my arm and we just bolted out of the rec area through the guest room in the second level and into her room. We just locked the door behind us. We were just kind of catching our breaths and trying to figure out what was behind those footsteps and what was the cause of those books falling onto the ground. Like we both heard it. So we were just a little worried that someone was in the house. But then again, if someone was in the house, then the alarm would have gone off. Sensors would have gone off. And, you know, it would have been obvious that someone (laughs) would have broken in. And I was also a little worried about her mom being downstairs. So she had the idea of, um, you know, calling the cops. And I said, no, 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 let's um, let's go grab some baseball bats from your brother's room because her brother played baseball. So we grabbed some bats. I grabbed the phone just in case we needed to make an immediate call to the police. And we headed downstairs to the living room. So we just turned on every single light in that living room. We checked her parents' room. Her mom is fast asleep. We turned on the light from within the living room into the study because you had access to the lights outside as well for the lights in the study. So we turned them on. We tried opening the doors. The doors were locked. Nothing was on the ground in the study. And we're thinking to ourselves, what was was that sound that sounded like books falling onto the ground? And we could clearly see there are a stack of books on her father's desk, but they were in the middle of the table. So there was just no potential for them just to fall to the ground. So we go back upstairs and we, you know, walk around the second floor. We turn on every single light on the second floor. Nothing. We go through the loft into the study. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary was there. There's nothing on the ground. And we were just kind of dumbfounded. We just didn't know what was behind, you know, behind the source of that noise, the footsteps, the books falling onto the ground, nothing. We just didn't understand what could have caused it. So we went back into her room. We locked the door. We're just going over and over in our mind what could have been. So we didn't fall asleep until 4.30. We wake up the next morning. We go back into the study just to do another walkthrough. Nothing. So who knows? Maybe it was the spirits just kind of coming back to say, hey, we're still here and we're still watching. Who knows? But it was, uh, it was a pretty intense and scary night. That's for sure. Well, guys, we hope that you have a happy Halloween. Now here is Bryce's tale. Hi, Hillbilly Horror Stories. This is Bryce Mitchell Williams from Holly Weird Paranormal. And I am going to retell a story. Um, I've actually talked a little bit about this story. Uh, one of my first paranormal experiences, I believe. Um, 
on an earlier episode that we did, but, um, yeah, I, basically this was one of the first times that something ever happened to, to me that I couldn't explain, but that enough people, um, also experienced that they could kind of, you know, corroborate my experience, I guess. So I went to school in a pretty rural town in Indiana, uh, called Warsaw or Winona Lake. And, you know, most of the, like the only places that were open past 10 were Walmart and Steak and Shake. So we spent a lot of time either like driving around or walking around by the lake. And on this particular night, me and two of my friends were walking in this like very nice uh, neighborhood that was like right on the water. It was like this really beautiful evening. We were just walking and talking and we kind of wandered through this like specific neighborhood and it was like big brownstones and little cobblestones on the street, little like lights lining the way. And so we're walking and like looking at these beautiful houses and it's a cul-de-sac at the end of the street where the trees had like grown over the circle of the cul-de-sac. And so it gets really dark and all three of us sort of stopped talking at the same time, like as we went into the darkness of the cul-de-sac. And I had been here uh, many times, you know, it sort of... uh, there was a bike path that sort of ran through this little cul-de-sac and you could go to the lake down by there. Um, and there was this field. And so as we were in the cul-de-sac, I kind of knew, well, maybe we can walk into the field, see some of the stars. Um, I like kind of thought I knew where we were going. Um, and as I turned and looked to the left, the field, uh, there's like a little, dirt path between the cul-de-sac and then like a 30-foot path and then you could see into the field and where we were it was nearly completely black because there was no street light and the trees had blocked out all the like extra light from the stars on the street but the field was as bright as day like the moon I've never seen the moon so bright and it was almost like blinding just because like we were in such a dark section and the field was so lit and there was like fog on the ground and it was reflecting off of that. And, you know, we kind of are wandering towards the field. And then I had this like very rapid chain of thoughts uh, as my mind sort of raced to process what it was seeing. And it wasn't until later that I realized like, oh, these aren't normal thoughts. Like you're, you're not, having a rational experience right now but I looked and at the edge of the path there was sort of a mass covering the whole path at the edge uh, right between the path and the field and I thought oh there's a log across the path they put a fire hydrant in because the mass went from being a horizontal mound and then like one section on the left side of the mass had kind of risen up and so I thought like oh it's a log oh it's a fire hydrant and then I thought oh it's a deer because the raised section like sat up further 
And then I realized, like, wait, that's not normal. Like, what you're seeing is moving. Um, and you're, like, sit thinking these thoughts like, too quickly. Like, it's not making sense. And then it jumped. Uh, you know, there's sort of still a section of the mass on the right, sort of still on the ground. And then it jumped up. And it was like a toaster strudel popping up out of a toaster, um, the shape of like a man, sort of. Uh, it was very like tall and thin. But the weirdest part, as we're watching this happen, is that I always say like if I get up off the ground, I like roll over to or like use my hands to like help myself up. This sort of just like was standing in a standing position without any like transitory movement. And so, and the weirdest part was that for how bright the light was, you know, it wasn't even as if this shape was backlit. It was as if the sign on a men's restroom with no distinguishing features, that that was the shape that we were looking at. There was no outline of like a jacket or any clothing that I could distinguish and also it wasn't you know illuminating any kind of like light on it it was pitch black the shape was and almost as if it was like absorbing or like void of light so it was like this dark mass that had no distinguishing features that was just like a smooth outline of a person but that was like too tall and too thin and not wearing any clothes basically um, and then this man shape, you know, and there's still a mass on the ground and it, when it popped up, it kind of was at a 90 degree angle, uh, perpendicular to us. And then it shifted and essentially looked at us. And I realized like later that we were then, you were all standing there watching this happen, sort of like silently paralyzed for like a minute while this happened and then when it shifted its gaze or like its mo movement towards us my friend she said what is that and hearing another voice I like felt my brain reactivate essentially and I just started running it like my fight or flight kicked in and I just started running away down the street the way we had come in and I like could hear them behind me. And it was as if the world started to implode around us. Like on the walk in, it's like probably midnight or so. Super serene, quiet, calm neighborhood in like a very nice area of town. And all of a sudden, like all the street lights are flickering and it like felt like the sound had like rushed back in. We're running down the street and there's like dogs barking and like this car alarm goes off and a person comes out and they're like shouting on their porch. And so we ran like a half mile down the path along the lake and like got to this one particular bridge and like ran and grabbed it and like turned around thinking like is something chasing us or is it coming after us or what did we see and you know of course we were trying to like rationalize it and the more we talked about it you know I was like maybe it was like two people like laying down like we kept trying to explain and the more we talked about it the more it was like yeah but why did it move like that why wasn't it 
full of color. Like, wouldn't we have seen someone's jacket? Wouldn't we have seen, like, it was so bright. Like, if it had been even wearing, like, a black sweatshirt, we would have seen, like, the shape of that. Um, so, you know, like I said at the start of this, it was just nice that, that I didn't see this alone. Uh, just for the simple fact that, you know, my two friends uh, and I were all, like, seeing the same thing, feeling the same... I mean, they both said the same thing. Like, when it turned and looked at us, it felt like the fear was just, like, radiating. Like, we... I just... I've never really felt so paralyzed by fear uh, ever in my life before that. Um, So, yeah. So, I don't know what that was, necessarily. Um, At the time... You know, it was a very religious university that I went to. I definitely think it was some kind of, you know, demonic type presence, whatever that means. Uh, I don't exactly know anymore, but uh, yeah, that was one of my very first sort of unexplainable yet corroborative, if that's even a word, uh, experiences. So... This is so great. Thank you so much for collecting these stories and uh, for all the help that you guys have given us. And I will see you guys soon. Bye. Weekly podcast doused in alcohol. And lit with knowledge. Clinkies! Hello. Hi. 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 (laughs) (laughs) This is We Drink and We Know Things. The podcast. Uh, That's Tom. Hello. And you're Andrea. Hi. We're married. Yep. We're ball and chain there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We just hit our one year on September 23rd. So if you are new here, go back and listen to the first episode or a different episode, just not this one, because this one is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. Yeah. Normally, Tom researches something and I research something. Yeah. And then we surprise each other with the story so that we can get our genuine reactions and just have fun time with it. Yeah. And it's cool because... I don't usually know what he's talking about, and he doesn't usually know what I'm talking about, so makes yeah. it fun. Uh, yeah. We're learning. We're learning. That's why we drink and we know. It should be really we drink and we learn things, really. Um, and but. the topics, they vary. Yeah. Um, where you stick to a lot of creepy, true crime, conspiracy theories, just all things weird. Weird. And we're lighthearted with it. Yeah. We're this would be classified as a, a comedy. I think, I I think we think it's a comedy We are podcast. not comedians. Not yet. But... You know, it's, this podcast is laughable. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, your research is laughable, so I can see why it's a comedy podcast. Oh. Uh, no, but, you know, it's 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 almost Halloween time. It's almost spooky season. Spooky, spooky, creepy, oh, creepy. Creepy, spooky, spooky. Yeah, our front yard in our house. Is very decorated right now. covered with Halloween. Yes. My favorite time of the year. It's a lovely time, isn't it? I love it. So this episode's going to be a little different because we're doing a collab with another really 
fucking awesome Kentucky podcast called Hillbilly Horror Stories. And they've been really cool in giving us insights and help since our first episode and they've always been they've always been cool for advice and stuff so they reached out to us and asked if we would if we had any spooky stories we'd like to tell they're, i think they're compiling an episode so we're yeah. gonna we're gonna do a little we're gonna do a little reading of a of a creepy pasta okay so this one is gonna be pretty direct i'm gonna start and we're gonna take turns going back and forth and i hope you guys find this as fucking creepy as shit as we did hold on to your butts ha <laughs> this is called the russian sleep experiment Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them, since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they only had microphones and five-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on, but no bedding, running water and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners, deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised, in parentheses, falsely, Mm. that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about his behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering into the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working, since they thought it impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive, In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber. Hoping to provoke any response from the captives, they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. 
Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of them were in life. The food rations past day five had not so much as been touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chests stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. So gross. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and the diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the rib cage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent What they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Jesus. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off. And an artery in his legs severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives, if you count ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than ten times the human dose of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arms of one doctor. When Hart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point to where there was more air in his vascular system than blood, Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeated the word, more, over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally felt silent. 
The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility. The two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative that they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even though the weight of a 200-pound soldier holding it was on there as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had triple the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested reluctantly Mm -hmm. that they try the surgery without anesthetic, and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically impossible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple. Keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well, although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. What the fuck? Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves why they had ripped out their own guts and why they wanted to be given this gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced, and they were placed back into the chamber awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, an ex-KGB, instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point, all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. 
The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might. First left, then right, then left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brain waves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwave showed the same flat lines as the one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as the three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point-blank between the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you, he demanded. I must know, the subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily, the subject asked. We are you. We're the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We're what you hide from in your beds every night. We're what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out so nearly free. Holy shit. The end. That was crazy. So... Just to uh, recap, that was uh, the Russian sleep experiment, which is a creepypasta. Uh, by artist. Artist? By uh, author unknown. Unknown. So that's why we're able to read it. Yeah. Again, we are We Drink and We Know Things podcast. This is very different than what we normally do. We're normally, there lots of banter. We're funny. We we're so funny. Don't, we're so funny. We're very humble. Funny. We're very funny. <laughs> <laughs> so give us a listen and check out Hillbilly Horror Stories as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. Peace. Bye. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. La, 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 Here in the forest, dark and deep, I offer you internal sleep. Hello, this is Lindsay. This is Regan. And this is Paige. And we are from... Something in the night. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry asked us to send him a story for his Halloween episode, and um, I wanted to tell the story from my um, haunted house from a few years back. So, um, this took place in 2009? I think the fall of 2009, um, I was pregnant with my daughter and um, trying to rush and find a house to live in um, because I was living with my grandparents with my husband. And um, we found this really cute house in a really great area. It was Enterprise Range. We go to um, check it out. <laughs> Reagan just burped. Oh. <laughs> anyway. 
so we go check it out, and I walk in, and for some reason we had to go view it at night. And um, I walk in, and it was like I immediately just got this weird vibe. Like, everything just looked... It was an older home, and I don't know. I just walked in, and I remember telling... Um, my husband at the time that I was like, something doesn't feel right. And he was like, no, it's cute. Quit worrying. It's fine. So we decided that night, okay, let's do it. And we signed the lease on it. Um, we moved in and my brother and his girlfriend moved in with us. And, um, as you both know, anytime my brother and I are together, things have always happened. Yeah, it's crazy. So, I'm trying to remember how it started. We, what, like, little things started happening. Like, I remember uh, my brother's girlfriend being in the shower and getting a call that somebody was in the house because she was hearing things and she was taking a shower and the light switch had turned off while she was in the shower. And she got out and she turned it back on. And it happened again, and she could hear things in the house, and she called me freaking out. And so it was little things like that, and then I had Bella, and Bella had her own room, and I remember um, we had a baby monitor, and it was like the old school one before I got the video one. Mm -hmm. So it was just like the sound, and I remember waking up because I could hear talking, and it was a female voice talking. And I realized where it was coming from. And it was like little whispers. Like you could barely hear it. And I remember waking my husband up. And he was listening. And he was. we tried to figure out. Like I know that like trucker receivers. Like they're. Uh, what are those called? The, uh, the, the radio, the radio things. Yeah. I know that those can interfere with that. But it was a female whisper. Like and it. Scared. Yeah, if it was a trucker, it'd come through like, yeah, this like is the, my uh, whatever. Yeah. This is Eagle one two three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I need to talk to Eagle one two two. Well, we could not figure it out, and it freaked me out so bad that Bella quit sleeping in that room. She would sleep in a bouncer or in her pack and play next to her bed. Yeah, and my brother started complaining about having like nightmares in that room. There, it was a weird, the the middle room where he was at, there was a door to the hallway for our room, and then there was a door to the kitchen. So there was two yeah. entries to it. And he kept complaining of nightmares. Um, his girlfriend kept complaining of nightmares. I don't know if you all can tell. I'm trying not to use names. Um, and one night we started talking about our old house and the things that were happening and how, you know, crazy this stuff was and um we decided since things had been happening in the house we were like well let's see if we can catch anything so it was me my brother my husband and my brother's girlfriend and Bella was there asleep in the bouncer um we all go into my brother's room and there was a light on in the living room but we didn't have any other lights on so you could see under the doorway like over here Mm -hmm. you can see under the doorway the light and I, I'm videoing this. I had a digital camera and I was videoing. And we were asking questions and, you know, not getting anything. We were taking pictures, not getting anything. And then all of a sudden, um, we see, like, the silhouette of footsteps. And it walks 
across the hallway into mine and my husband's room. And we were like, what the hell? And as soon as we started saying something, it walked and stopped right in front of the doorway. And this is on camera. For the life of me, I don't know where this camera went. I don't know if it was in our house fire. I don't know if, if one of them have it. But it wasn't made up in my mind. It wasn't made up in any... We all four saw it. And yeah. there was no one else in the house but the baby. And she was like two months old. So we see it walk away. And my brother freaks out. And he goes out and he's searching the house. He starts freaking out. Things, you know, just continually start to happen. At this point, one night, my brother and his girlfriend were going to sleep. And I know that you guys know the story behind the old house. Mm -hmm. The listeners won't. Um, In my old house, my mom and my dad were laying there about to go to sleep in their bed. And they were talking about the stuff happening in the house. And it sounded like a growl in their face and a sledgehammer to their headboard. And, sorry about that, that was my mom's dog. Um, the exact same thing happened to my brother and his girlfriend. And that very next morning, they moved out. Because it scared him so bad. He doesn't even like to talk about that. Mm-mm. It freaked him out so bad. And, um, so at this point, I'm living there with just me and my husband and my daughter and he worked in the oil field, so he's gone all the time. You guys remember. Yep. I was always by myself. <clears throat> and um, I remember I was watch. I wasn't even watching a scary show. I think I was watching Entourage on HBO. And Bella was in her little bassinet on the floor. and Or the bouncer on the floor. I was laying on the couch. And, you know, nothing weird was going through my mind at the time. Um, my husband was driving home. And all of a sudden, still to this day, freaks me out so bad. I saw, the best way I can describe it is, like, fog, like thick fog, Mm -hmm. but it was a ball. And this fog was rolling. And it starts on the side of the couch, and I'm looking at it. Was it, like, floating? Yes. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, am I really seeing this right now? And all of a sudden, it starts rolling across the couch, and it's, like, slow, like, almost like a wave slowly and it goes down the couch i literally swope grab bella and i ran out that freaking house i'm trying not to cuss (laughs) and sat on the porch and i was bawling and i called my husband and told him i'm not going back in that house where are you at we're i will leave like i'm not going back this was it scared me so freaking bad And he came home, nothing, we couldn't find anything. That was the only time in my life I've ever seen anything uh, appear that I can remember. And, like, we would have our bed shake. Um, What else happened in that house? The, you know, bad dreams. Oh, his mom moved in with us towards the end of it. We didn't tell her anything about this house because we didn't want her to go in with, like, a like fear scared. or right <laughs> so we didn't tell her anything and we put her in that room where my brother used yeah. to stay she started having nightmares and she it was i feel like she was telling me it was about a fire and she would smell fire which is exactly what happened to grant and i and um 
finally she woke up and she said that she there's something bad in that room that she kept hearing a growl the same thing my brother heard and that kind of confirmed it for us that, yeah, like, that he was this making is it up. real yeah. yeah so it wasn't long after that we moved out and still continued to experience things but not to that extent yeah so that is my scary haunted house as an adult. And that's that. <laughs> what is in haunted houses? I know. I think something's attached to us. You're real. building a house. So if something happens okay, there. But things are still happening even in the camper. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I don't think. Maybe I need to go get baptized or something. I don't know. <laughs> Me and Rain did. Well, I You're have. wearing the shirt. I'm wearing the baptism oh, shirt. you are. How funny. <laughs> it's oh, comfortable. Uh, that doesn't fit me. I was a small. I think this is an extra large, so it's pretty comfy. Um, did you have anything? Um. Or do you want to save that? I'm going to talk about what just recently happened. I was about to talk about that. No, you guys can both talk about we it. We can talk about that. You know this is for Jerry's show. Yeah. Hillbilly Horror Story. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so, just recently, just a, not even a week ago, mine and Reagan's grandma, it's our dad's stepmom, she passed away. She's been sick for a really long time, so, like, it was a, not a big deal. Like, it was a big deal, but it happened. <laughs> we took a picture. Um, but we had went and saw her the day before. She, well, first of all, me and my mom, we went and saw her the week before. She was fine. Nothing was really wrong with her. Like, yeah, she was sick, but she, she wasn't too bad. Right. And so, a week later, me, Reagan, and my mom get a call, and it's there, it's the hospital, and they say, oh, she just got moved to ICU. You guys need to come see her. So, we do. And, yes, she's, like, out of it. She's on a whole bunch of painkillers. Looking nine months pregnant. Yeah, her stomach was so Aww. bloated that it, she looked pregnant. Yeah. It was so sad. Like, me and Reagan, like, we went down to the cafeteria to eat because it was, like, six, it's seven hard o'clock. Watch. Yeah, and yeah, I just got out of, like, practice. Yeah, so we went down to eat. Instantly, I got, felt so sick. Like, I couldn't go back up and see her. Yeah. And so, that next day, she passes. Mm-hmm. Me and my mom were up there. Reagan was at school. Reagan didn't know anything had to happen until after school. And so when I was there, like, she was laying there. She had the tube in her mouth. Like, everybody pretty much was there except for my dad. And then my he dad's stepbrother. Yeah. yeah. And then my dad's stepbrother, his wife, wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. And so... I had, they said that they were going to take the tube out so that they could start winging her off so that way she's ready to go. Yeah. I go into the waiting room. I'm sitting in there. The TV was on. I was watching TV. It was on playing on my phone. All of a sudden. Trying to distract yourself. Yeah. All of a sudden this wave of, I don't even know what to call it, but like a feeling came over me and the TV shuts off. What? Completely shuts off. What kind of feeling? I don't know how to describe it. It wasn't like relief, but it was like, like I knew it was her. Mm-hmm. So she was sitting oh, there like with the you. moment she yeah. passed. Oh my gosh! It was her. Gosh. Yeah. The TV Aww. shut off, and like I could feel her. 
Oh, that's going to cry. Like, not even, like, five minutes later, my mom comes in. She's like, I forget what she said, but she was, she said something about, she didn't say that she had gone yet, but she said something about she knew that she was gone as soon as we got there this morning or something like that. Mm. And then I go, she's gone, isn't she? And she's like, yeah. And then, like, we just both start crying. Not even, like, a week ago, she was talking about buying new wedding stuff. Yeah, she... When me and my mom went up to go see her, she she was like, honey, to my mom, she goes, honey, I need to talk to you, but I think it'd be better if Paige was out of the room. So I'm like, uh, okay, love you, bye, whatever, yeah. I go sit out, and then she goes, so have you ever heard of Wish? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that was <laughs> And she goes... I've just been finding all sorts of things that I think would be beautiful for a wedding and all of this stuff. You know, the day that that happens, you have to use. Oh yeah, some of that stuff. We're now. we're gonna go over to her son's house and like, and we're gonna get look and see, we're gonna get so, something for both of us in like five years when I marry my fifth husband. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but yeah, you're. I just so people know what we're talking about. Your mom sent me a picture. And said, I think she had a shopping problem. And there was literally about yeah. 20 packages yeah. of On the picture. coffee table. It's like a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> like, so she funny. is so sweet. And she's it's an hard to believe lady. that she's gone. And it's so weird that, like, I was there. She was laying in the bed. And then I went into the waiting room. And, like, I felt it. Yeah. It was... That's, you know, our loved ones always have a way of letting us know, you know, that they're okay. Yeah. And they know that we're going to know that them yeah I think a lot of people I think everybody has the ability of feeling these things they just choose to close themselves off yeah like if that happened to like say Grant if that happened to him he'd be like he is way more in tune than he oh yeah he's gonna ring the shot bell (laughs) but if if the tv had shut off for Grant he'd be like oh the cable just cut out to explain everything yeah no that we need to talk about talk to him about all that stuff at some point but anyway, um, do you have anything you want to... Yes, I do. She predicted the future. Uh-oh. I did. Okay. Okay. She really did. I th- I, didn't I tell you this? I don't know. Okay, so I had, like, the same night, I had a, I had problems sleeping. And this was the night that we went and saw Grandma the day before she passed, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, like, I, I sleep like a baby. I can fall asleep anywhere if I wanted, but mm. the only times that I can't sleep is I know something's gonna happen mm. or something. Bad feeling. Yeah. And so, you know, I just got into this really bad car accident. Yeah. I had a dream that I was in another car accident, and, like, I woke up, and I'm like, ooh, that's weird. Yeah. And so I just went to school. You have PTSD from this car wreck. No, just wait. No. <laughs> just wait. So I went to school, and I, like, I knew she was gone, like, by, like, third hour. I'm like, I know. I know this. So by the time I get home, Mom tells me. And I was like, I, ha- I had a feeling. And I started telling her about this dream that we were in another car accident. Well, I guess Dad's stepbrother his uh, wife oh, was in there. Yeah. Yeah, the reason that she wasn't accident. there yet was because she, she had gotten in a car accident. accident. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And her. No. Your dad's brother, his real brother, mm-hmm. his wife's dad died the same yep. night, yeah. right? The, the, the day before grandma. Gosh. That's so crazy. Well, we're very intuitive 
family and people probably are gonna think we're crazy. But you can listen to our crazy on our podcast. Yeah, on can. something in the night. Um, we, we always try. have special <laughs> guests and craziness, and we talk about true crime and paranormal and lore and whatever. We might crazy sound things. stupid, but it's funny. <laughs> we're funny and weird, and it's a shit show. So just come take a listen. Anything else you guys want to add? Check us out on all of our social medias. You should just be able to search us, listen to our episodes, and that's about it. Yep. Thank you guys, and thank you, Jerry, for allowing us to be on your Halloween episode again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh, crap. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) My computer's locked. We're still recording. Okay, bye. 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 (laughs) Well, guys, that wraps up about three hours worth of scary stories for this Halloween edition. We hope you enjoyed all of our stories. And please, if you hear some of these podcasters, subscribe to their shows. I know they'll appreciate it. And I know you'll get a lot of good entertainment out of it. Thanks for everyone who participated. Have a good, safe Halloween, guys, from Hillbilly Horror Stories. Happy, happy.